January 1982. In this episode, I'll review the game Seamus by Catherine Mataga, and in a bit of cross-podcast promotion, Rob O'Hara of the Sprite Castle podcast also reviewed Seamus in his most recent episode. So I'm going to point you there to the gameplay review, and I've got a technical review of Seamus. In addition to the usual magazine coverage this episode, I have an interview with a podcast listener and somebody who was published by Compute Magazine, Michael Portuizi. Also, I have surprising news on my main cabinet. Rejoice at the fact that this month's game actually has a musical theme, and regrets for the Portland Retro Gaming Expo this year. This is the Player Muscle Podcast. I'm Rob McMullen, and we're ready for episode 17. I'm very excited to get into 1982 because I think there's a lot of fun games that are going to show up this year and magazines like Antic start up. So we'll get to cover those, but I got another big episode here. So I'm going to get right into the feedback. I mean, to mention this for a couple episodes now, but uh, one of my favorite podcasts to listen to is 10 pence arcade and both Vic and Sean mentioned that they listened to player missile. So thanks guys. And uh, yeah, if you're not listening to 10 pence arcade, you definitely should be. They were one of the influences with me to build that main cabinet and as a spoiler for the main section, I actually did finish my main cabinet, so it's, well, it's multi-finished, but I'll get into more of that in a little bit. One of the cool things that happened in the intervening time between the last episode and now is that I met a listener. Kevin Lund and I met up for a beer, and I bought a bunch of old analogs and antics from him, so setting up for future episodes. He was getting rid of some duplicates in his collection, and I'm just ecstatic to have all these, so I've got about 20 analogs and 25 antic magazines. They don't start up until, like, 83, so I'm not going to be able to look at the paper stuff quite yet, but getting close. So it was great meeting Kevin, and I am looking forward to meeting other listeners at some point. If there are other Bay Area listeners, we'll have to have a meetup sometime. That would be fun. He also told me about the San Leandro Computer Club, which is a meeting of retro computer enthusiasts that meets once a month. I'll include a link in the show notes, and at some point, I will have to try to get up to that. It's quite a ways for me. Still a Bay Area, but Bay Area is pretty spread out. But yeah, they have some Atari folks, and be fun just to get together with some other Atari people. Got some feedback from Alex Santos, who said, I started listening to your show from episode zero about a week and a half ago. I did start with the later episodes, but I liked what I heard so much that I had to start from zero. Well, thanks. Great. Glad you, glad you like it. Really like the style of the show and what you're covering. I'm really intrigued by your attempts and goal of making Star Raiders more efficient with explosions. That's really cool. I wish you good luck with that. And I will follow what you're doing. And for your audience, please remind them that your website is there's really a lot of neat stuff. And I'm only beginning to explore that side of your work. Kudos to a rewarding podcast, and my wish is that the podcast journey will lead to territory that ends up providing more content for your listeners. Best wishes, and thanks again for the contributions you're making. Well, thanks, Alex. And yeah, I do not promote the website as much as I should. I've got a lot of stuff up there. I occasionally mention like the download section where I've got a bunch of ringtones from Atari 8-bit games. I've got a big, huge magazine grid that shows starting from 79 all the way through the final dedicated Atari magazine that I know of, New Atari User in 1998. I've got a text section in there where I'm starting to you know, have stuff about my Star Raiders attempts. I'm going to expand that more as I get into more detail on the games. You know, I've, I've covered a bunch of technical stuff on games in the podcast, but I've not actually broken it out into the web, and I would like to put that up on the web so people can sort of see more of the technical stuff that I've discovered. And I hope for future games I'll be able to add like a page for each of the games that I sort of dissect. I also have my main cabinet stuff and maybe this is a good enough time just to get into the main cabinet update. So yeah, I finished it. Well, mostly again. It's actually in the house now, and it's playable. I have it booting straight into Pac-Man. 
so the it's a Tempest shaped cabinet. I found plans for Tempest and links to all this stuff are in the main section of my, of my website. But I found plans for Tempest and I modified them slightly to make it a little bit easier to build. And then I have this sort of modular control panel where it's a regular sized width. It's 24 inches wide. And I made these sections of two inches, four inches, and six inches wide by, I think it's like seven inches long. So these little rectangles. And each of those can be mounted a joystick or a set of buttons or a trackball or whatever. And you can mix and match all these things. So you don't have the big gigantic panel with 55 buttons and four joysticks, two trackballs, a spinner, and you know driving wheel sticking out of the side of the machine or something. The goal was to be able to select a game that you want to focus on, change the control plan out to meet to match that game, and then just play that game. So my idea is not really to have a like multi-cade going at all at once, is to have a single game playable for a while, then I'll switch it to a new game, change the controllers out, and play that game for a while. And as I, yeah, as I said, it's, it's been on Pac-Man now for about a month or so. My neighbor has the high score, so I haven't been able to beat his score yet. And my kids are just starting to get <laughs> comfortable with the joystick because they've been, you know, working on like iPads and stuff. And so they're touching, used to touching the screen for their user input. So joysticks are a little foreign. You know, of course, the era I grew up in was all about the iconic Atari joystick. For me, game pads are foreign, so I can understand what they're going through. But I have plans to build a second machine. I think it's going to be a cabaret style, so it's a little shorter, a little narrower, but still use the same modular control panel. So the uh, cabaret, I'm going to put a vertical monitor in. I have the horizontal monitor in this upright cab, so that way I'll have two machines. You know, one I can play vertical games, one I can play horizontal games. And again, my goal is not really to have a multi-cade going, so I'll just switch out the controls to match whatever game I want to play, and then, you know, change the games out every month or something. I use several other cabinets as sort of the basis of this modular panel idea, Rick Reynolds of the Intellivisionaries has a modular panel. Brian Stirk from Atari Age has a, a metal panel that's very cool. You can almost exactly duplicate the arcade layouts of any arcade game because I think they're like one inch wide metal strips. And so you can, it's very fine control, but I can't do metal working. So that was out of my league. The one most like the one I'm doing is, uh, I don't know this guy's name, but it's, uh, it's called Doc's Modular Mame on beersmith.com. And it's very close to the idea that I'm doing now. We've got these individual panels that have buttons or joysticks or whatever mounted on them, and then you can swap them in and out. His retaining system is a bit different than mine in that he kind of wedges one end underneath something, and then the near end fits down into pegs. And I couldn't make that work with the Tempest design because the, the monitor is sort of in deep. So what I came up with is I, I have a big magnetic bar, and there's little bits of metal on the bottom of, of the far end of each a uh, little sub panel and there's a tongue and groove system. So the, on the front of the panel, there's a little tongue that fits into the front of the cabinet of the inside part of the wood of the cabinet. So you sl- slide that part in the front end and then you snap the back down and it snaps onto the magnet and that keeps it in, in place. I've got pictures up on my website. And one thing I copied almost exactly from Doc's modular main build is the idea of using ethernet cable as the sort of quick connectors. It's a bit of a problem because the ethernet, the wires is the gauge is very thin and so to actually crimp it onto one of these connectors that fits onto the, the spade of a um, micro switch or something, the gauge is so thin that I have to have to like fold the wire a couple of times to crimp it. So it's not the sturdiest of electrical connections, but fortunately there's very, very little power going through this stuff. I'm using a Raspberry Pi, a Raspberry Pi 2 Model B, which is the quad core 900 megahertz most recent version of the Raspberry Pi. That is powering advanced MAME uh, 1.2. I was running MAME for All, which is using a very old set of uh, MAME ROMs. 
like the 0.38 or something MAME ROMs, and it supports 2,000 or so games. But I was having a problem with the sound. I couldn't get the sound to to stay synchronized. In previous versions of RetroPie, I found a way to work around that, and so I was able to get the st- for the sound to stay synchronized. But in this re- RetroPie 3.0 distribution that I'm using, I could not... It, I don't know, it was, it was a delay or something, and I so I... On a whim, I kind of switched to advanced MAME, knowing that the later versions of MAME take more resources, and so I wasn't sure that the Raspberry Pi 2 could work it well enough. But as it turns out, it can, and I got the sound synchronization issues all figured out. So yeah, so that's what I'm using. I'm really only interested in, in games, you know, the 80s. I think the latest game I'm really looking forward to playing is Rampart. I think that was a 1990 game. But I, I actually haven't tried Rampart on advanced MAME 1.2, so I'm not sure how well it plays. But this old stuff... You know, it seems like there's players plenty of horsepower in the Raspberry Pi too, and pl- you know draws like a watt, and so I leave it on all the time. I just got a separate switch for the monitor to turn that on and off. I have a quarter acceptor built in, so the kids need to use their allowance to play. <laughs> Although when when we host parties, I do put it on free play, so guests don't have to bring their own quarters to play. But yeah, it was fun to build. Uh, if you have any questions, certainly let me know. I'm happy to talk about it. I'll post some more stuff on Atari Age and up on my my own website. I've still got stuff to do like the artwork. You know, I am not an artist. So I got to figure out how to make the marquee and how to get some side art. Maybe I want to put some bezel art there. That's one thing I also haven't done is I haven't mounted. I've got some plexiglass to mount over the screen is sort of like the, the bezel. The one thing I do like the monitor I have is an old Dell 19 inch uh, LCD, but it's a matte screen. You know, it's not glossy. So it's nice then that it doesn't reflect a lot of the stuff from the room. You know, the ambient light of the room doesn't reflect off the screen. But if I put the, the plexiglass on the bezel, then it, you know, then it gets all this reflection. And so, yeah, so now I don't know. Maybe I won't put the plexiglass over the bezel. I don't know. But yeah, at any rate, if you have any questions uh, about the cabinet, the build, or whatever, just send me an email. I'd be happy to talk about it. All right, let's get into the magazines. Yay, we are into 1982. This is Analog 400-800 Magazine, issue number five. Two bucks, 25 on the cover price. The art on the front cover is kind of like a matrix sort of scene. It's like, you know, green lines. Oh, actually, it's sort of inverse matrix. It's green background with white lines sort of converging in the distance. And um, this sort of wireframe outline of a, a guy pointing to a Atari computer and a disk drive and a monitor and stuff. And it says, graphics, exclamation point, fine screen scrolling, mixing graphics modes, V-blank interrupts, and player missile. So thanks for the shout out, guys. So as you know, Analog is my favorite magazine. So this is the one I'll, I cover in the most detail. The inside front cover is an ad for the Mosaic 32K RAM upgrade. It's like a single board instead of the, you know, each board, like an 800 would have 16K and there were three slots. So you get, that's how you get the 48K RAM. This is a single board you could use. $179.95 or $450 today in today's money. Next page has an ad for Race in Space by Charles Vachon, which is, I think, going to be published here pretty soon in the magazine. But right now it's available through analog software. And then there's a little blurb that says, Attention programmers! Analog 400 800 magazine is interested in programs, articles, and software review submissions dealing with the Atari 400 and 800 home computers. If you can feel you can write as well as you can program, submit these articles and reviews that have been floating around in your head, awaiting publication. It says they pay 30 bucks for printed page for text articles, 50 and up for feature programs, depending on length and complexity. And by submitting articles... Authors acknowledge that materials upon acceptance for a publication become exclusive property of analog. If not accepted, the articles remain property of the author. As we talked to Michael Portuizzi in this episode as well, the Compute had a similar sort of policy as well. There's another ad for Compute's first book of Atari for $12.95, which is $32.50 today. And then we get to the table of contents. So I'm not going to really bother reading the table of contents because we're probably going to cover everything. So here we go. 
in the editorial by Lee Pappas, he says that Analog has moved to new offices and they've hired some new folks like John A. Bell, whose name we'll see in long-running series of these analogs. He talks about a new method for software reviewing where they're going to include five categories. The uh, concept, how good the overall concept of the game is, how original it is, the challenge, the skill, and then how well the, the game uses, utilizes the Atari's specific graphics modes. Got a lot of reader comments. I even got one from Atari itself. It says, uh, Dear editor, I got a note from someone with a copy of a recent issue in which you stated we are no longer producing conversational Italian. Not true. We're cranking them out. Hope you have a good new year. By Signed, J. Peter Nelson, Public Relations Manager, Computer Division, Atari. So even Atari's reading Analog Magazine. In the Atari news section, they have a picture of the 5200. It says, New video game to stomp the competition flat. And it describes a little bit, it's not called the 5200 yet here in this article. It just says it's a replacement for the four and a half year old VCS. But it says the handheld unit combines joysticks, paddles, and keyboard controllers into one unit. The joysticks move in eight directions to control both direction and speed of the objects on screen, which as we know now is not quite true because it's a potentiometer based joystick. But at this point, you know, I guess they were not exactly clear how it was going to work. And it seems like they just got this from press releases or something. It's, I don't think they had an actual, or it doesn't say that they had an actual um, hands on time with it. More Atari news. The list price of the Atari 800 has been reduced to $899 or a bargain basement $2,245 in today's money. And they talk about new packaging. So the, the computers now come in the, the attractive silver and full color packaging, which is the, that's the kind of style that I have. Another little entry in this Atari news section was the winner consumer electronics show. It said several four, new 400, 800 software pieces were debuted, include Caverns of Mars, available on disk through Atari itself, right? not the APX version. And then Pac-Man and Centipede on cartridge in May and June, respectively. List price on those is $44.95, or $112 in today's money. Holy cow. Also shown were the Atari Bookkeeper and the Home Filing Manager, both of, both of which I'm sure Wade will talk about at some point in the Inverse Tasky podcast. The first article is Three-Dimensional Graphs Made Fast and Easy by Tom Hudson. And it says, in this issue of Analog, I review the Atari Graphit package. And as you may recall, I was somewhat irritated by the rather slow nature of the three-dimensional plot function. So actually, it's it's not reviewed till later in the magazine, but he, this was printed before that in the in this copy. So his goal was to make a faster 3D plotter. So this shows the X, Y, and Z axes in um, sort of a I don't know, isometric projection, I guess. So the X, Y plane kind of looks like a parallelogram. And the z-axis is pointing up on the screen. And it's laid out in a grid. And so when you change values, when you have the z values for whatever function you're graphing, it makes little peaks on this above this um, parallelogram graphics plane. So this is a little basic program. I remember using this. I didn't have this issue, but I, this was in the analog compendium, which I think is a, sort of highlights the best of, of the first nine or ten issues of analog. I don't know what it is, but it was a big spiral bound book. And I remember typing this in and... and being pretty amazed by the ability to see three-dimensional graphs. It's not a huge program. It's only about a, I don't know, 70, 80-line program. And one of the neat things is it has a graphics clipping routine because, as you may recall, you can't plot to a point off the screen and it'll give you an error. So you've got to write a little software program, a little software routine that will allow you to essentially draw a line that would go off the screen. But yeah, the OS would not allow you to do that. There's a game review of a game called Shooting Gallery, which I think it looks like a little reminder... There's some arcade game this reminds me of, and I can't think of what it is, but you're sort of on the bottom and you're shooting stuff that's in rows on the top and then kind of the rows on the top, they move around. And it's not, it doesn't look like a very 
I don't know, in-depth game. But this is their, they have their new rating scale. And so this, the analog software rating system, they rate it from one to 10 on concept, originality, challenge, skill, graphics, sound, and then the overall rating. So one is unsatisfactory and 10 is ideal. And this, they give this thing eights, nines, and tens, which is, I think they will come to see that this is a very simplistic game, probably not deserving of such high ratings, but you know, the sort of the first time they're using this, they probably have a tendency to overestimate kind of like sort of like grade inflation or rating inflation. I don't think this game is deserving of quite such a high rating considering what star raiders would be off the charts if this was using the same system. Here's a review of Jawbreaker, which we talked about in episode, what was it, five? And interestingly, despite all that talk about ratings, there's no rating of this game. This article, Is There a Laser Disc in Your Future? by Bill Latino. This is talking about the big old 12-inch disc, or I think that's about what size they were. So are you going to be able to interface it with your Atari eventually? So it's kind of a fluffy little article, not much, in, not much real information, but saying this is this technology is coming. In several antic interviews, uh, Kevin talked to a few people that were responsible for interfacing the Laserdisc demo, but it was certainly not a you know publicly available project. And um, as we know now, of course, there was no Laserdisc, no consumer Laserdisc access for the Atari at all. Review of Eastern Front, which we talked about in episode what eight. This one does have their new rating system, and they give it a 9.3, so just barely beating out the shooting gallery program. Review of File Manager 800, which is not something that Wade's talked about yet. It's a database program. It comes with a 94-page manual, and allows it's just, yeah, generic database record searching entry, stuff like that. But I feel out of my league. I'll, I'll leave this for Wade. Another review of a game here. It's called Fantasyland 2041 by Crystal Computer. Reviews by Craig Patchett. There's no screenshot, and there's no screenshot on Atari Mania either, so it's kind of hard to tell what's going on, but it seems like there's a, it's like a top-down map, I guess, sort of analogous now what we think about maybe Ultima? I don't know if not, I didn't check it out. But the map, it says, is 16 screens or so big, and there's a bunch of different lands, different levels to explore. The reviewer here said he spent 75 hours playing it so far and has not beat it yet. So I've never heard of this, and I'd be interested if anybody has heard of this either. Review on Atari Mania said there was a crazy amount of bugs, but it was one of the one of this reviewer's favorite games. Yeah, I've never heard of it. So the analog review scale gives it a 7.2. So yeah, not quite sure what to make about that game. Atari Mania doesn't have an image for it, so I, have, I wasn't able to check it out. And I didn't really look past that, so maybe it's out there. The next article is a program called Stopwatch by the same author that just reviewed this game, Craig Patchett. It's a little machine language program that runs in the background that can create a little stopwatch that you can use. And of course, it's got the assembly language listing nicely commented. Here's an article, Player Missile Graphics, A Step Beyond by Robert LaFurla. So it's a very basic intro to Player Missile Graphics. We've talked about Player Missile Graphics quite a bit, so I won't go into much of the detail here because it's, it's a sort of a gentle introduction to what it's all about. You know, there being... Four players, four missiles, the DMA stuff that goes on, and how to turn each one of those off, on and off. goes a little, in, a little bit of how the bitmaps work, and has a little scratch pad graphic page that you can copy and then design your players by hand, how to calculate the bits and stuff. And then it's got a nice little summary table of the memory maps used for stuff that you're going to use for player missile graphics, like the horizontal position, the colors, that kind of stuff. So yeah, so a nice little intro to player missile graphics. There's an article, the VCS update by Lee Pappas. And again, I'm not sure how long they're con- going to continue these 2600 updates. List some of the upcoming titles for the 2600. The Super Breakout, Haunted House, Pac-Man, Yars Revenge, Defender, 
Star Raiders, and it says, believe it or not, Star Raiders isn't too bad on this. The difficulty switches turn the shields and attack computer on and off. No sectors to jump to, and the enemy ships just keep coming at you. So, much different game, but yeah, it's not too bad. And Ferg reviewed it already on, on uh, the 2600 Game by Game podcast, episode 87. On the 2600, there was another similar game, I think, called Star Masters by Activision, which I think most 2600 people like better. There's the Assembler Editor Non-Tutorial Part 4 by Charles Bashan. Talks a little bit about joysticks and how to operate them and, you know, the bit patterns that when you read the joystick register, what the bits mean. And then talks about a program called Mapware, which is an APX program that allows you to move around, move maps around the screen. And so he's got a program here that can take the Mapware data file and scroll it around on the screen. And like normal, they've got the commented assembly language listing. But I couldn't find Mapware or this program by Charles Bashan anywhere, um, and I don't have the dedication to type it, type this in. So if anybody's got those, uh, yeah, let me know. We can see if we can get that back up on Atari Mania or something. There's an article on the Atari Display List by Craig Patchett, and it's all about mixing graphics modes. And, you know, we've talked about Display List enough that this is really another just kind of basic introduction. But yeah, at the time, it was still, still early on, and Dayray Atari is just now becoming available. And so this is really the way a lot of people were able to get their information. You know, now the benefit of 30-plus years in the future, <laughs> there's any number of ways to get all this stuff. But back then, this would have been new data. This would have been new information for most everybody. Now, here's a review of Atari's Graphit by Tom Hudson, and where he says that it's like super slow. This thing can do a bunch of other charts, so it can do pie charts and bar charts and stuff. And Tom Hudson was particularly sort of disappointed with the 3D graphics stuff. He said it's uh, the program is written as basic, and it's terribly slow. He does conclude that it was an excellent way to display the graphics in an easy-to-understand form, but yeah, he, his it was tempered by the the fact that it was super slow. But yeah, for us, it prompted him to write that 3D graphics plotter in this magazine. Here's an article on Create Your Own Custom Graphics and Characters by Tony Messina. And this is talking about redefining the character set, which again, we've already talked about quite a bit. But again, this might have been the first time people have seen this. And there, you know, there's, there's a, another summary of sort of binary arithmetic and how you make these little bitmaps. So player missile graphics uses it. The character graphics uses it. Anytime you have a bit on a particular position, you've got to figure out, well, what does that bit, what value is that bit? And then you add up all these bit values to get the byte value that represents that bit pattern. You know, so a bit turned on in column one is a one, and a bit turned on in column two is a two, dot, dot, dot. You know, a bit turned on in column six is a 64, and in, in seven it's 128. And so if you've got bits zero, one, six, and seven turned on, then you're looking at, let's see if I do this in my head, 192. Two plus three, so yeah, one ninety-five. In hex, of course, it's easier. It's C three would be the same value, one ninety-five. But it's basically this article is all about okay, we can copy the character set from ROM to RAM, and then kind of replace characters that you want, and then whenever you type something, it'll be pop, it'll be your new character. There's a mailing list program by Gary J. Patton. Essentially it's a fixed format um, database where you got first name, last name, address, city state zip phone and there's some a little bit of extra thing but it's a little basic program actually a pretty big basic program but yeah not a general purpose database by any means there's a view of the dynacomp text editor by bill latino <laughs> a review in the sense of saying well i was unable to coax dynacomp's offering into a consistent crash fee operation i did become conversant enough to offer a few observations that <laughs> apparently it was a based on a north star version and the atari version is like not very well done Oh, here's a contest. Analog's first annual programming contest. Grammarian Pet Peeve. Can't be the first annual if you've never had it before. It's the inaugural. So, all right. 
soapbox off. Says the author of the best or most informative program tutorial or article we use through March of 1982 will receive an Atari 810 disk drive in addition to the royalty payment. So get those entries in. March 1st, 1982 is the deadline. There's a teeny little how-to article about how to make an asteroids controller with the buttons for left and right and then thrust and fire. And there's a fifth button that's labeled option, but it's how to wire up the DB9 connector to replace a joystick with a bunch of buttons. And that's pretty much it. The back cover is an ad for the Lishtik, that uh, Mercury Switch joystick that friend of the show, Siegfried Lentz, sent me an email about and said that he tried it and was not very good. All right, let's look at Byte Magazine. This is January 82, Volume 7, Number 1. Cover price, two bucks ninety-five in the U.S., three fifty in Canada. And unfortunately, they don't have a great piece of art from Robert Tinney like normal. They have a picture of a boring beige box, the IBM personal computer, and that's all it says on the, the cover. Not my favorite computer, but we'll see how these guys like it. But despite the title, they have a lot of different stuff in the table of contents. The very first feature is the Atari Tutorial Part 5 Scrolling by Chris Crawford. The next article listed then is A Closer Look at the IBM Personal Computer by Greg Williams. And then 36 pages after that is the next article. So even though we know that Byte is like half ads, this still is going to be a long article on the IBM PC. And there's a bunch of random articles for the TRS-80 and the, the ZX-80. There's an article listed. It says Apple Talks with the Deaf, which is hardware and software where you can pick up the phone and wish a deaf person a good day. So I'm going to check that one out. And the next article after that is An Effective Text Compression Algorithm. The blurb says, reduce the size of text files by identifying common pairs of letters. So we'll see what that's all about. And there's other random stuff. So we'll see what shows up as being interesting here. And if your interest is ads, there are lots of lots of ads. And the first real article in the magazine, though, is the Atari tutorial. And as we know, the Atari has you know, built-in horizontal and vertical scrolling, scrolling capabilities, and you can combine those to scroll diagonally in all different directions. And I was thinking about this. In effect, the Atari 2600, you know, the precursor to the 800, really could do vertical scrolling quite easily because since you're drawing the screen line by line by yourself, you can manipulate the vertical scrolling however you want. And I guess in effect, horizontal scrolling as well. Although, so if you're using play field on the 2600, you've got a very coarse horizontal resolution where in the vertical resolution on the 2600, of course, you've got you know, every line, every scan line, you can do something else. But with a frame buffer like the Atari 800 system has, you've got to do more complex stuff. And so there are, you know, there's built-in hardware with the Antic to handle this. A little inset in the first page of this article, it says, by manipulating just two address bytes, you can produce an effect identical to moving the entire screen RAM. And compare this to what you would have to do on an Apple II to do to implement scrolling. You'd have to blast all the bytes throughout the high-res screen because the high-res screen is always fixed in memory. You can't move it around. We've talked about displayless and stuff, and displayless manipulation is, is part and parcel to scrolling in that you can set the first byte of each line to show up to be wherever in memory. So he talks about the difference between coarse scrolling and fine scrolling. Coarse scrolling is sort of at the byte level where you can, yeah, using these start address bytes, you can position the screen at any particular byte. But, you know, in, in graphics, say seven, that's four pixels, in the, four pixels in the horizontal direction. And if you're talking about a, you know, a tile mode, Antic 4, Antic 5, or, you know, one of the text modes, then you're talking about like an eight by eight pixel size, say you're talking about graphic zero, and that's coarse scrolling, but there's these fine scrolling registers that allow you to manipulate at the pixel level where the, these individual bytes are being displayed. So basically we're going to do horizontal scrolling, or actually vertical scrolling for that matter. You've got to have the, the display list set up, so you've got to load memory scan at each line of the display list. So you've got to be able to position the display list as a window on the you know, sort of the larger memory screen, memory 
area that you set up. And then you use these these fine scrolling registers to, to shift the display incrementally at sort of the, a pixel or actually color clock size left or right for horizontal scrolling and then at a scan line size for vertical scrolling. Once you scroll a big enough chunk where you can actually move the display list over so you get a byte, at a byte boundary, then you resettle the load memory scan addresses to this new place and you set the fine scrolling registers back to zero. And then you've essentially implemented a bunch of fine scrolling things until you can get a coarse scrolling boundary. So this article goes through this and shows you how to set up the display um, display lists for this kind of arrangement, shows you how to set the, the data in memory for this kind of arrangement, and goes through the fine scrolling uh, registers and how to use those. One of the best early examples of fine scrolling, of course, is Chris Crawford's own Eastern Front, which is one of the seminal games for the Atari, and you know showed off the ease at which the Atari could do this kind of stuff. I hope at some point to design my own game and you know use this podcast as kind of a way to kind of track my progress. And one of the things, of course, I want to do is use the the stuff that Atari can do well, which is scrolling. So I'd like to have a big scrolling game. And I've I've never actually messed with the scrolling to a large extent, but as I read more and more about it, I'm starting to understand it. So hopefully I can able to, I'll be able to include that in a in a game that I write. And I will keep you posted. All right, the next article we get get into is a closer look at the IBM personal computer by Greg Williams, the senior editor. And as you might expect from being Byte Magazine, it's a very in-depth article. It goes into some technical details about the graphics modes, about the basic that they're using, describes a little bit about the BIOS. A lot of screenshots, a lot of very like high-resolution color screenshots, really sharp in this uh, scan that I'm looking at here on archive.org. And if you use x86 stuff now, you'll not, not be surprised that the fonts kind of look the same as they did in uh, text mode. You know, only up until recently, with the last the last computer I built you know, from a motherboard, just assembled components and stuff. The most recent one I built has a uh, all graphics BIOS. Everything else was still the character-based BIOS. You know, you change BIOS settings and stuff to boot up. And the font looks essentially exactly the same as the as the font they show here. Talk a little bit about the color graphics adapter, CGA. I don't know much about the in-depth technical stuff about the PC, so this is all new to me. But it was a two-byte character uh, storage for each character on screen. The one byte was like the ASCII value. And the second byte was the attribute code, it says. There are three bits for foreground color. There was one intensity bit. There was three bits for the background color. And there was one bit that told the character to blink. So for text mode, you got quite a bit of variation at the cost of a second byte, you know, for the for the color. The colors were apparently hard-coded, you know, no color registers like the Atari. And this was all driven by an Intel 8088 processor tied to the, what would become known as the ISA bus, the industry standard architecture bus. That's what the card slots and stuff, that's what they would use. It ran on a whopping 4.77 megahertz, which is still more than twice as fast as the Atari. And it was a 16-bit processor besides, so you could definitely move more data than you could on the Atari for the same clock speed. But the legacy of the 8088 and the IBM PC is still felt today, obviously. Would have been fun if I had, had IBM chosen the 68000 and CPM. We'd have a different world today, but that horse left the barn a long time ago. So anyway, a really in-depth overview of the IBM PC. And clearly, Byte Magazine thought that this was going to be a winner. And clearly, clearly it was, so they were right. Well, we'll skip it. Oh, here's an ad for the VIC-20, the friendly computer for $299.95, or $750 today. And I'm not going to spend much time talking about the VIC-20 since it's really not in the same league as the Atari graphics-wise, And but the 64 will be, and so we'll definitely talk about the Commodore 64 when it comes out. I think we're going to see the first sights of the C64 sometime in 82, is that right? I'll have to talk to Mike Whalen again. He's uh, one of the Commodore guys I met at, at Kansas Fest, and he grew up with the C64, so hoping to have him on the show at some point. We'll talk about C64 and how it 
sort of compares the Atari. And uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to learning more about the C64. Oh, there's an ad for Amdeck monitors. I remember Amdecks. Those were, yeah, I never had a monitor. I always worked on a TV, but I always wanted to have an Amdeck monitor. Really good, good quality stuff. And ironically, the, the Commodore had a good monitor. What was it? The 16 something, 1604? No, I can't remember. There was some Commodore monitor that we all wanted that was that was a good one. And so you'd see a lot of Ataris hooked up to Commodore monitors. Had for Percom disk drives. Had for Dyson floppies. I didn't have a Dyson floppy. I don't remember Dyson floppies, really. There's the usual technical articles. There's one on AC motor control, a bunch of circuit diagrams and stuff. There's a joystick ADD converter for the TRS-80 Model 1 or Model 3. A bunch of schematics. How to wire up a potentiometer joystick to your TRS-80. That's about 20 pages. Wow. There's an article about troubleshooting with electronic signatures. Using logic probes, I guess, for detecting different patterns and uh, signals and stuff. The only thing I know about a logic probe is it was something in the movie Tron, and it was bad. They didn't like it for some reason. Another article for soldering practice, there's an accidental reset protection for the Apple II. So if you had an old Apple, just hit the reset button accidentally to reset the whole machine. In the article, it says newer Apples, had they made, they made you do the control reset, but this person had an older one, so uh, it was a simple little hack. Well, simple, not for me. It was some soldering stuff where you'd have to actually hold down the control key and hit reset on it on your old Apple II to get it to reset. There's BASF floppies. I did use those. As I go through the rest of this, see if I'll have to see any more ads for floppy disk manufacturers. <laughs> the Omni floppy disk, which is designed to be reversible, and it has two timing holes in the uh, in the in the cover, so you can flip it over on those machines that actually use the timing hole for uh, synchronization, which the Atari didn't. You could just you could happily use the back of a floppy disk. And in fact, you're wasting half your storage space if you didn't do that on the Atari. Here's the article, An Apple Talks with the Deaf. So talking about interfacing your Apple II with the uh, TTY system, the teletypewriter that translated speech to the teletype machine so that a person without hearing could then type and transmit over to regular phone lines. And as usual for a byte article, there's some circuit diagrams and there's some code. And like anything Apple, you got to do everything yourself. So you're counting cycles. Here's the article, An Effective Text Compression Algorithm. The basic tenet of a compression algorithm is to recognize patterns in the input and then use those duplicate patterns to save space in the output. So you like store a pattern and then instead of repeating that pattern every time, you just point back to say, oh, this is another copy of that pattern. So there's some discussion about you know basic compression techniques. And then the author points to the idea deciding to use pairs of letters or digraphs. I forgot to mention the author is David Cortesi. So basically the algorithm is use regular ASCII text, eight bits, but use the seventh bit to as a flag. So if the seventh bit is not set, then it's just a regular ASCII byte. If it is set, then it becomes a digraph. And so this one byte then re- represents two characters. And the way he chose that which letters made up digraphs was using the most common frequency table of um, English. But obviously you're not going to be able to encode, encode every single possible digraph. So just by, you had to limit it. And so he chose... A certain set of those to to work in this uh, algorithm. Although there's, there's no actual code to the algorithm, there is some pseudocode, but you're left to your own devices to actually implement this for whatever language you want. So this is not a compression algorithm in the sense of like a Huffman coding or something, where you're actually making a table and you're looking up table you know values in a table. But it's more like it's almost like an encoding, an encoding kind of like they did for Infocom games, where they I think they use like was it five bits to encode um, letters. What is five bits? That's 32. It's either five or six. And so they'd use, instead of just, you know, pack characters in sets of five bits and then wherever the byte boundaries happen to fall is where they break it up. Something like that. Anyway, he includes a sample text from um, Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. 
339 characters in the original and in the compressed version saves 29%. Saves like 100 bytes. And there's an article, Structured Programming in Basic. Haha. <laughs> there's a Geosat program, which is calculate azimuth and altitude positions for uh, aiming a satellite dish. A little bait, well, pretty big basic program, actually. In the What's New section, there's lots of stuff. And the only thing about Atari is a, a RAM disk, 128K from uh, Axelon, which I never had, but they, all the current emulators support those. Oh, and on the inside back cover, elephant floppy disks. So you go 504 pages of Byte magazine and a couple mentions of the Atari. Let's take a look at Compute. Or Compute! This is the January 1982 issue, volume four, number one, issue number 20. On the cover is their usual sort of style of artwork. It's got a kind of line drawing and pen of like an Empire State Building looking thing. There's like three food apples, like a red one, a green one, and a yellow one. It's got a color bar below that. And a little cartoony guy with having little thought bubble saying uh, some gibberish text. Because in related to that, uh, there's a sidebar that says Cryptogram, a code great game for your Atari. And also on the top, it says Atari Superfont, design your own character set. And as a spoiler to the interview you'll hear, hear later, Michael Portuizzi used this Superfont as a basis for one of the programs he submitted to compute. So the table of contents shows a healthy selection of stuff in the Atari Gazette that we'll get to. And a bunch of random stuff from the Apple and Commodore that we probably won't. On the next page, this is the first time I've seen this ad. This is an ad for the Atari Star Award. It says, introducing the premier award of the software industry. Win $25,000 in cash plus prizes and an Atari Star by entering your software in the Atari ASAP competition. And interestingly, they don't define what ASAP stands for. Oh, I guess it might be the Atari Software Acquisition Program. So you're entering your software in the Atari Atari Software Acquisition Program competition. Hmm. The trophy itself, they have a little picture. It's... I'm assuming this is the one they actually handed out. It's sort of this hexagonal clear column with on the top perched looks like the spaceship from the original Superman, the motion picture, you know, that baby Cal L was sent off Krypton. So the text of the article or the text of the ad says uh, every three months, Atari will be presenting Atari stars to the writers of software programs judged first, second and third place in the following categories, consumer, including entertainment, personal interest and development, education, Home business, which is personal finance and record keeping, and system software. The quarterly prizes will be from seven hundred and fifty to three thousand dollars worth of selected Atari products and an Atari Star Award. An annual grand prize will be the coveted Superstar Trophy and twenty five thousand in cash. So presumably, the Superstar Trophy is this hexagonal column with the Superman baby ship on top. So you have to submit your program to the Atari Program Exchange. Got to be published in the catalog, and then you're automatically entered. That is a teaser for an upcoming episode, I just interviewed Mark Reed, the author of Getaway, and he won one of these Atari Star Awards. Continuing on in the magazine, the editor's notes section, the first little entry by uh, the publisher, Robert Locke, says, injunctions, injunctions, and more injunctions. Atari Inc. goes to war. <laughs> it says, if you picked up a computer magazine recently, you couldn't help noticing the full-page software piracy ads the Atari Personal Computer Systems division has been running everywhere. And Yes, if you listen to this podcast, you've known that I've seen those, mentioned those, and railed against them. It continues, Atari has been moving quickly and quietly, ha, quietly, against major and minor software vendors whose products step on the toes of our Atari arcade games. It says that some unnamed company on the West Coast recently lost a set of injunctions to Atari. They don't name what the game was that they apparently were infringing upon. So the editorial question is, does Atari Inc. have this particular software out for the personal computer line? And it says, well, no, but that's not the point. In spite of the fact that the computer version of the game is significantly expanded from the arcade game, 
and original encoding, the current state of software law appears to side with Atari, or at least it did at the end of the current round of claims. The visual image and the theme of the game were definitely Atari's, and thus we end up with a protection based on some extent on concept. We talked about this before when we talked about Jawbreaker and the lawsuit against online systems and John Harris. But at this point, you know, Atari is still pretty openly hostile. Well, you know, again, I suppose they have to defend their copyrights, but but at this point, you know, copyright law is still unsettled enough. The editorial continues and says, I fully support Atari's right to protect their proprietary software. The principle has to be firmly embedded in the computer industry to allow it to grow and nurture a more exciting future growth. But there does seem to be a gray area here which needs to be more fully explored. I suspect with this recent flurry of legal activity that the screen is becoming cloudy, as it were. I assume no one is arguing whether the game is original, unique program code. I assume no one here argues that it took months to develop, perfect, refine, and enhance. So we're back to the concept, visual image, and style of presentation. There are only so many ways to program an arcade game on a 10 or 12-inch screen. And here's a danger. Depending on the rightness of the court interpretations of this portion of the fight, we're leery of ending up in a situation so broadly defined that it defeats competitive game development. A broad interpretation of the rights to player missile graphics would cripple the software industry, leaving access to a few. So basically, he kind of agrees with me, and or I agree with him, I guess, and that it doesn't make sense to copyright the gameplay, although the specific images should be copyrightable. I don't know. But those dumb ads, I hopefully we've seen the last of those. All right, we'll continue on in the magazine. There's a program called Invest, which is written in basic about investing in real estate. Article, How Random Are Sequences of Random Numbers by Brian Flynn. It's talking about statistical analysis of your R&D function in basic. Nice little read if you're interested in stuff like chi-square distributions. New little column starting in the education section of this magazine called Friends of the Turtle. It's about logo, or particularly the turtle graphics of logo and pilot and stuff. And we come to the Apple Gazette, which we will skip, and the Atari Gazette, which we will not. First entry in the Atari Gazette is Cryptogram by Ron and Lynn Marcuse, who I've talked about before, Wade and Versitaski's talked about before. They've been interviewed on the Antic podcast. Prolific authors. So this cryptogram is a word game. Basically, it's a uh, simple letter substitution game, and you're trying to you're trying to guess the words that it has scrambled. But no screenshot, so I refuse to type in games that don't have a screenshot. Well, I don't really type in games anyway. But definitely to have a good chance of me typing in a game or looking it up, you're gonna have to include a screenshot. So take note, authors of 33 years ago. Here's Superfont. This was published in one of the compute books. I can't remember which one, because I've seen it, but it's a character set editor. It's written in basic, and um, yeah, I've, I definitely remember seeing it. I'm, I'm sure I use this as well. Basically, it lays out a grid of, you know, 8 by 8 or whatever, and you can set the bits, and it'll generate the hex or decimal values for you. It was written by Charles Brannan. Next article is Word Search by Bob Jones. Presumably, it's one of those scramble games where you have, like, a grid of letters, and you're trying to find words that are hidden inside it diagonally or up and down or something. But again, no screenshot, so yep, not typing it in. There's a review of the screen printer interface version 2 from Macrotronics, reviews by David Thornburg. So it says the program allows the user to transfer any image from the graphics screen to a suitable graphics printer with a single keystroke. So basically a print screen function. And here's the Inside Atari by Bill Wilkinson. It says, I've recently seen a copy of the complete Day Ray Atari by Atari's own Chris Crawford, author of Scram and Eastern Front. We're, of course, going over the serialization of that in Byte Magazine. But it's nice to see this is starting to appear here. It's not, I don't think it's this. So this is published January 82, you know, lead time and stuff. So he's obviously looking at a pre-release version. And he goes on to talk and says this month's column is part three of the series on the OS. And he's covering device handlers. 
So these device handlers are like the drivers that allow you to replace you know, the keyboard or screen driver or something. It's, kind of, it's what the XEP80 uses to allow you to run an 80-column display just without any hardware modifications. You plug this device into the joystick port, and it I can't remember if it must be the E device that it replaces. But anyway, there's a table of stuff. There's an op- there's a You change an address, or you set up this table for the handler for the open, the close routine, the get and put bytes, a status, and then there's this XIO routine. And that is your driver. And so you can replace the keyboard or whatever driver and uh, enhance or change the functionality of the whole OS. So it's quite a long article about it and uh, well worth reading, even as a sample driver in assembly language. And that's it for the Atari Gazette. There's the reappearance of the OSI Gazette, just a few pages, but the OSI systems are not listed on the cover anymore. There's the Pet Gazette, and then there's a tiny section on the VIC-20 before we get to the uh, new product section. There are a few Atari things in the new products, including, including a K-Byte Software K-Razy Shootout, which is a game I think I may have seen at some point. I'm sure it crossed my pirated desk at some point. In the Wonder If I Still Have to Drop at 3 Inches category, there's an announcement of a new powerful version of the Apple III. One of this is the Apple III Plus. And as we get through the end here, there's an ad for the elephant floppy disks, and on the back is the creepily grinning William Shatner advertising the Commodore Pet. And that'll do it for this compute. Okay, let's take a brief look at computer and video games. The UK magazine for January 1982, 75p on the cover price. On the cover is sort of like a long sinewy dragon with large mouth and tons of little teeth battling a sort of wizard-like character. Maybe even a dwarven wizard, it's hard to tell. It says the magazine that makes computers fun, fun, fun. In the competition section, they have a take on the arcade world where it says, are you a top arcade player? It has a little entry form. I would like to enter the best arcade player in the world competition. So they give you a place to list the machine you play, the highest score you've got. <laughs> and the manager of the arcade slash pub where I achieved this score was a witness and signature of the witness, name of the arcade slash pub. So they're going to collect all these entries and the highest scores on the 10 most popular machines will appear in the arcade section in the some future issue. And they're going to gather... This is the top three scores on the three most popular machines we hear from by 7th January will be invited to take part in our Grand Arcade Game Final, which will be taking place on the 26th of January. And they're going to pay the expenses for these finalists to come out there and have a, a round, I guess, on all these machines and a fourth mystery machine, they said. So yeah, we'll check that out when that comes back in the next few issues. There's a little Know Your Creatures section where they have a list of like nine silhouettes or bitmaps from various games, and you're supposed to fill in the blanks. That's been a running theme through all these issues so far. There's an ad for Terminal Connections Limited, which has a, a bunch of Atari stuff. Atari 400 there. In the game news section, there's a bit that says, Will Simulators Take Off? Talking about the game Jumbo Jetlander, which I think in the U.S. appeared as 747 Landing Simulator, because they're talking about it's a thorny EMI game. And if it's the same one, then Chris and I talked about that in Part 2A of uh, Flight Simulator, which was would have been the last episode. As usual, there's a bunch of basic games, and as usual, there's no screenshots. Again, there's that section about the guide to low-cost computers available in the UK. Pretty much the same list they had last time. There's a big multi-page ad for this place called Computer and Video Center, spelled incorrectly, C-E-N-T-R-E. So yeah, like 10 pages of ads for this place. But uh, there's big full-page color ads for um, various systems that they're selling. So there's a picture of the Atari 800 with the 410 program recorder, 810 disk drive, 850 interface, Atari 400. The Atari 800 is 645 pounds. And the 400 is, let's see, 345 pounds. But considering the VIC-20 costs, what is it, 180 pounds, 
yeah, I can see why they didn't sell a lot of Ataris until the XL series came along and it was really cost reduced. But that's about it for this one. Nothing super exciting here. Eventually we'll get to issues where my friend Neil got some stuff published in here, so I'll definitely highlight that. But for now, we're just going to kind of skim over computer and video games till I see Atari stuff. Let's see if Computer Gaming World has more Atari stuff. This is volume two, number one, for January, February of 82. $2.75 on the cover price. On the cover is a sort of classic scene out of 2001 with, a, with these large apes looking at this big black monolith, except the monolith is actually a five and a quarter inch floppy. The inside front cover is an ad for SSI, Strategic Simulations Incorporated. And a lot of the games that we've sort of seen here have been sort of war games in this magazine. SSI was certainly a big war game designer uh, that I remember. This big article on, it's called Rewriting History on the Computer, Napoleon at the Battle of Leipzig. Napoleon's campaigns of 1813 and 1815, apparently. It's a game by SSI. It's about a seven-page review of the game. And it's not really a game I'm interested in, so... I mean, a genre of games that I'm really interested in, so not really covering this too much. Yeah, I don't expect a lot of coverage of simulations and stuff. War games, yeah, it's not really my style, so... I'm more of the action arcade game, and but you guys probably already know that. There's an article on the Sword Quest series, which is a Dungeons & Dragons sort of spin-off. article on the game Galaxy, which is a multiplayer space game by Avalon Hill. Multiplayer in the sense that it's like turn-based strategy game. There's a one-page article about Ca- Castle Wolfenstein, where it includes the maps. But it says they're not quite sure if the maps are correct, so the first person to... I said the first three readers to send in verification that the maps are entirely correct or they send corrections, will receive a free one-year subscription to CGW. Article on Tank Ticks, which is a game about tank battles between the Russians and the Germans along the Eastern Front during World War II. It's again, by Avalon Hill. Strategy game. It is available for the Atari, and I would hope it would be because it's authored by Chris Crawford. But again, sort of an early turn-based strategy game, then that's not hold much interest for me. Here's an article called The Atari Arcade. This is by John Anderson. He's looking at three arcade games, Jawbreaker, Galactic Chase, and Protector. I guess arcade-style games. We've already talked about Jawbreaker, Pac-Man-style game. Galactic Chase, it says, I wager the author would have called this program Galaxian if the name hadn't already been coined. Which gives a brief little review, says, you know, know, pretty much Space Invaders, Galaxian-like. And it says, perhaps the most ambitious game of the pack is Protector from Crystal Software. It's by Mike Potter, and I'm almost reviewed Protector in last year's worth of stuff and the 81 stuff protector 2 is a more interesting game and i may get to that here in this year but it's, it's a defender-esque game it's a very difficult game and talking about the original protector and the author says protector represents a breakthrough of sorts the music in the program is excellent it remains constant throughout the game with the result of adding much character to its play and when your ship is down and an ambulance shoots out to drag you away the overall result is humorous at least until frustration sets in it's been nearly a year now since Atari let its secrets out, and the rewards are now beginning to be realized. Atari graphics are far and away the best around. This fact is even more apparent from these and other third-party software vendors. So yeah, given the state of the games at the time, I could see where this would be a really impressive game. But even so, comparing this to Protector 2, Protector 2 is another leap above. There's a section called Micro-Reviews, and in it there's a review of a book, How to Master the Video Games, which is one of the few books I actually have. It's a book by Tom Hirschfeld, paperback. And it's how to beat the games, like Space Invader style games, Asteroid style games, Maze games, Reflex games, and there's a general miscellaneous category. So this little micro review just kind of lists all the games that it covers. And uh, I didn't find the book actually super helpful. I haven't played a lot of these games, but a lot of it was just like, yeah, you just need to practice a lot, which is true. But and <laughs> but I don't know, expecting like sort of a more hand holding approach or more patterns, I guess, for like Pac Man and stuff. 
Other little micro-reviews include uh, Zork, the text adventure, and Ultima. This is the original Ultima 1. I never played Ultima 1. I got into Ultima and Ultima 3, and so I played Ultima 3 and Ultima 4 to completion, but I never went back and played Ultima 1 or 2. Alrighty, how about creative computing? This is January 1982, volume 8, number 1, 2 bucks 50 on the cover price. On the cover, arcade games and how to beat them. They show a row of arcade games in some arcade and includes one of my favorite games, Crazy Climber. Inside front cover is William Shatner with his creepy grin again. It's getting almost as bad as the Atari piracy this game is over stuff. But fortunately, I haven't seen any of those this month. Only two mentions of the Atari in the table of contents, the Eastern Front Review and then the Outpost Atari. We'll see how many more there are in the rest of the magazine. Here's a fun article, The Expert's Guide to Beating Asteroids, Battlezone, Galaxian, Ripoff, and Space Invaders by Dave and Sandy Small. <laughs> it says this article is meant for those of you who can't sleep without at least one game of asteroids under your belt daily. It's for those with Battlezone Tunnel Vision, which makes you drive strangely during rush hour. In short, it's for players who already know how to play the games, but need some tips on how to beat them. So for Space Invaders, <laughs> it mentions the oft-repeated Kanara the Japanese Mint uh, needing to put more coins in production which we've already kind of debunked in the Space Invaders episode. Its basic strategy seems to be just to knock off columns at a time, which is, I guess, the obvious one. Well, interestingly, he doesn't do what I thought was the correct strategy, which is to sort of pick off the rightmost column first and then kind of work your way to the left. He leaves the rightmost column and picks off the next one, gets that whole column cleared, and then the one to the left of that. So he's got a like a two-column gap, which he calls his safe zone, and then he does that to the other side. So he always has this little safe zone. I mean, the problem with that, of course, is that it's, it's still, the screen is still wide, or the, the number of columns of the invaders is still pretty wide, so it, it marches down the screen faster. But he says in no particular hurry, he just picks off the bottom row at a time and keeps going up, and hmm, I don't know, I'll have to try that. For asteroids, his strategy is the one I used to see back then, which was destroying all the asteroids except for one, and then he suggests the one that's moving mostly vertically. And then you start moving as fast as you can vertically, but then turn to the right. And while you still have this momentum going vertically, use your shots to pick off the little small saucers that come by for a thousand points each. There's some tips on Galaxian, which I never really played. I never really liked Galaga either. There's some tips for Ripoff, which is one of my favorite games. And his, basically his tip is never, never play Ripoff alone. And that's basically it. There's not a whole bunch of strategy here. And the final game they cover is Battlezone. This is a great game, especially, you know, I had to stand up and look through the little porthole and you have the two controls and stuff. Because the tanks don't lead you, that yeah, you can't. St- you you got to keep moving. So he suggests to alternate moving with both handle- handles forward and then only one handle forward. So you kind of do this little zigzag pattern. And for the buzz bombs, he says, get as close as you can to a barrier, and the buzz bomb will like hop over you. And the key to super tanks he says also is to use the barriers because the super tanks come straight for you. But if they hit a barrier, they'll stop and they'll back up, and that's when you can pick them off. So also, and as as you heard earlier, I have my main cabinet complete, so I'll have to put some of these games on there eventually. I'm not sure what's going to go on next after Pac-Man, so... But at least four of these five are going to go on there. I'm not sure I'm put, I probably won't put Galaxian on there ever. I don't really like Galaxian. But certainly the others will, ha- will have their turn. There's a review Eastern Fronts called Atari Goes to War, written by George Blank. We'll talk about this too much because, to, you know, we've already covered it, but I will say that the reviewer says, Nearly every aspect of this game is a technical masterpiece. He says, I have no hesitation in calling this one of the very best war games available for a personal computer. And as I noted, you know, when I reviewed it, it is good. I just wish in a modern day it's just so slow. So if this were modified to work with a touchscreen, I think it would be great. You know, the Atari 800 emulator has that Koala Pad interface, so I wonder if that could be modified. Not something I'm likely to take on just because I don't like war games well enough, but, but if somebody's interested, I think that it would be a, a great possibility. And then there's a section talking about hooking up video disc players to personal computers. But at this point, it's just the technology is still not there, and the 
hardware to do it is just expensive. It is interesting to hear them talk about megabytes of data at a time when, you know, hundreds of kilobytes was a lot. In the news, there's talk of the Atari Software Acquisition Center. It says the first regional center has opened its doors in Sunnyvale, designed to provide a place where qualified software developers can work with Atari equipment, have access to technical reference materials, and be able to work with a staff of trained people who can answer their questions about Atari computers. Hey, here's an article on Dvorak Simplified Keyboard for the Apple. Even though it's for the Apple, I just type on a Dvorak, so it's uh, nice to see this was around even then. There's an article about arbitrary-sized integers. It's a program written on the PET in BASIC. It says, to multiply two numbers each 100 decimal digits long, to give a 200-digit product takes about 20 seconds. There's an article on the second annual International Computer Problem-Solving Contest. It's a team competition for elementary and secondary school students to solve five problems within a two-hour time limit. There's like local contests and they judge there locally and then I guess all the results are aggregated nationally. It's going to take place on April 17th, 1982, so get your applications in. Here's the Outpost Atari by Dave and Sandy Small. Beginner's Guide to Character Sets. And basically it's exactly that. It's a beginner's guide to how to change character sets to have custom graphics. How the bits work in a byte to create the actual shape of the character. Some of the workings behind Antic. And some sample programs. I sort of feel like we've talked about most of the stuff before already. You know, I've, you know, scrolling, player missile, graphics, character sets. The only thing I've really talked about a lot is sound, and that's because I don't really know a lot about sound. So I'm just kind of glossing over this article just because it's, you know, I don't want to repeat myself too much. But again, just like all their stuff, it's very well written, and it's it's very clear in a way that I think it would be beneficial for somebody who hasn't had a lot of experience in this to try to read this article first before they read other things. Like, certainly, Deirdre Atari is, is very much a starting from a, a highly technical place. And while this is certainly also very technical, it starts from sort of the basics and builds it up where Dayray Atari just kind of jumps into the middle. The Axelon RAM disk is mentioned in the new product section, which we saw, I think, in Compute. <laughs> and the back cover is an ad for elephant disks, and all it says is, a in big bold letters, remember, period, with a big picture of an elephant on it. So it seems to be the th- theme of the magazine ads this month is elephant floppies. I think in three or four of these magazines, we've seen an ad for elephant. Okie dokie, let's check out Micro, the 6502-6809 journal. This is number 44, January 1982, $2.50 on the cover price. And I guess I should not be surprised that the cover picture is as if you're in a computer monitor looking out, sort of like you're in some stone pedestal looking out to some columns and ruins and stuff. The Atari part of the cover says Atari 800 player missile graphics. So we shall take a look. The only thing in the table of contents besides the player missile graphics column is the uh, From Here to Atari, which is a regular column. It's by Jim Caporell, who's going to form, or he's going to start Antic here in a, in a few couple months. The article on player missile graphics is essentially a basic overview with a table of all the memory map locations. There are several basic programs that also demonstrate using the player missile graphics. And there's the obligatory page six routine to move players up and down in memory, because you know Atari Basic didn't have a built-in command to do that. But it's nothing we haven't seen before, and nothing you're probably not, probably not still you're probably tired of all this stuff that I've kind of gone over many, many times. There's an article about the color computer and its uh, program pack port, which I guess is the I.O. port in the back. But there's some circuit boards you can can create to uh, interface some stuff with that. There's an article about the Apple II. The integer basic apparently had something called a, a pseudo-machine called a Sweet 16, which is a 16-bit virtual interpreter. It says you can use it with through regular Apple or yeah, integer basic but it was seldom used, and so this is a program designed to, I guess, exploit some of that stuff. Article on the MX-80 printer, and there's an article about Pascal, and then we get to From Here to Atari, the uh, column by Jim Caporell, talking about vertical blank interrupts. 
He says, the number of machine cycles available at vertical blank time is some fraction of the 29,868 machine cycles that are needed to trace one entire television frame. In normal graphic zero, approximately 7980 machine cycles are left over at the vertical blank to be shared by the OS and any programmer supplied code. It's still not quite clear to me how the vertical blank use really affects the program that's also running. Like if your vertical blank is very short, does that speed up the other program? But I guess it's all tied to the refresh rate of the screen, so maybe not. I don't know. I still don't quite wrap my head around it. In addition, there are two vertical blank vectors, the immediate and the deferred vertical blank vector. If you want to replace the operating system functions, then you replace the immediate vertical blank interrupt address, which is at 222 hex. And the normal one you replace is the deferred vertical blank, which is 224 hex. And normally the 224 hex, all it is is a return from interrupt instruction. So that's essentially your, your free space to put your interrupt. In the Atari 2600, of course, the vertical blank is the only place you could do anything because during the regular screen drawing routine, yours, the CPU was totally tied to the screen. In the, you know, the 8-bit series, of course, there's, there's time available during the screen processing because Antic has offloaded a lot of that stuff to actually draw the screen. I've used vertical blanks before, but I've not really sort of understood all the implications of, of using them. So it's something I hope to get into at some point. There's random things for the Kim and pet computers, some stuff with uh, Microsoft Basic, a few articles on Pascal, and the always impressive 6502 Bibliography Part 40, where they try to list all the stuff, all the like magazine references, books that have things to do with 6502. And it looks like this is roughly the March and April 81 time periods. And that's it for Micro. Hey, pod people, Michael Glazer here with more Softside coverage. This month, I was able to get ahead of the game and spend a little more time focusing on Softside, but I was going to try something a little bit different. I'm going to spend a little less time getting into the details of the stories and just kind of summarizing the article. Let's hope my fan enjoys it. It's January 1982, Volume 5, Number 4. The price is still $3. The cover features three racehorses, one in the lead, while two are behind in neck and neck and hot on his tail. The cover reads, Off and running with Gambler. And at the turn, it's VC, Apple Captcha, Piazza Hotel. These refer to the few programs featured this month. I bet the odds are in our favor for this month's issue. The cover art is by Bill Geis. In the editorial section, Softside says they're going to add a fourth system of the TRS-80 color computer, or COCO, to the list of systems they already cover, but they promise they won't reduce the coverage of the other systems. Uh, they already cover two models of the TRS-80, the Model 1 and the Model 3, so technically that'd be five systems, but who's counting? We're only really interested in one system, the Atari. Input. This is where readers get a chance to tell Softside how they feel. Robert L. Riggs of Ventura, California states that more people are discovering the Atari and draws from his past experiences of starting cold with computers by telling users how to get up and running as well as proclaiming, Never give up! Never surrender! The editors concur with their suggestions, and with all the readers' input relating to the Atari this month, I have to agree as well. Eric Stouffer has been successfully translating Apple and TRS-80 programs to the Atari, but finds it difficult mapping peaks and poke commands between the two. I remember back in SoftSide 38, there was an ad for a basic encyclopedia. I kind of wonder if that book had that sort of detail in it. That would be very useful. Jeff Dunn of Lenox, Massachusetts, says that most of the work typing in Atari programs from SoftSide usually isn't worth the effort, and he only uses the Atari for games. Hey, if you're learning how a program works by typing in, that process is always worth the effort. Karen Ann Golubek complains that Super Dairy Farmer, posted in August for the Atari, only comes on disc for the Apple version, which you have to pay for. The fact that Dairy Farmer Simulator has a fan base surprises me, but with how much the Apple used to cost, Apple owners should be used to paying a bit more. Say Yoho by Scott Adams. 
In November's issue, Scott covered this process and challenges transferring his adventure games from the Apple to the Atari. And if you hadn't read this article, I found it very interesting, and I suggest you go back and check it out. This time around, uh, Scott credits the Atari for being a fine personal computer, but says that the uh, use of the audio serial bus it makes the Atari the slowest disk drive in the industry. I want to thank Commodore for coming up with their floppy drive, so we're not dead last. Instead of disk-to-disk copy, Scott used the TRS-82 Send Data one line at a time via the serial port. The Atari then would just copy the lines to the disk. Now that he has the data on the Atari, it's time to make the games run on the system. Since both the Apple and the Atari use the 6502, he would just uh, need to do with the I.O. differences, such as save game, player input, and screen output. Of course, the Apple and Atari handle video quite differently, where the Apple uses memory map and the Atari uses the display list. His solution was to allow the Atari to create a 40 by 24 display list and then hand him back the starting memory address. He also created an alternate character set so he could display the adventure uh, script font. A feature that the Apple didn't have. Way to go, Atari. He goes on to discuss the struggles of being a software publisher with licensing, lawsuits, and copyright issues. It turns out ensuring a name for a game that hasn't been used is both expensive and difficult. He mentions the game Starfighter, a game they advertised about five pages back from this article, and the game's name had already been used last year. Luckily for Scott, he was able to do it without a litany of lawyers. Oh, one last thing. I keep catching myself calling this thing Say YOLO instead of Say Yo-Ho, and I just found out that's actually a magic phrase in, in Scott Adams' Pirate Adventure to get you on the island. So I guess if I played more Scott Adams Adventures, I'd know that. <laughs> Microtext 1.1 by John Voskill. Last month, John started development on Microtext, a simplified word processor, and this month he continues by adding a couple of new features for the Atari, Apple, and TRS-80. If you listen to my coverage, you know that this is basically a programming lesson, not really a worthy uh, document creation tool. In this version, he adds format and print text on the printer, as well as printing lowercase characters for systems that can't print them. Of course, the Atari doesn't have that issue. Next month, he'll be adding a much more improved line editing feature. Gambler by Randy Hawkins. This game requires 32K for the Atari, 24K for the Apple, and 16K for the TRS-80. This original game gives up to four players a shot at winning big by playing more than a dozen different games of chance. Play the lottery, spin the wheel, or bet on the ponies. This is just a small sample of the gambling glory that's been rolled into one game. Atari Mania has this game rated at 4.5 out of 10 with only two votes. Atari DV. This month's disc version features Death Star. You play as a spy for the Rebel Alliance. You've just been transferred to a nuclear reactor of the famous Death Star, and you must find your way out. Hey, wait a second here. For one, transported. That's a Star Trek element. Second, famous? I mean, how many people actually knew about the Death Star other than the Empire? The planet Alderaan? For sure, but they only knew about that for information for a split second before they were destroyed. The fact that they went around blowing up planets constitutes infamous status, and due to the lack of effective advertising, that infamy was probably on a limited scale. Oh yeah, the Death Star. This is a 3D maze game that has super slow routines. I could have commenced primary ignition the time it took to generate that maze. Its fame or infamy is also limited since there's no copy available on Atari Mania. Several Bothans were able to provide me with the code, but I doubt even the Rebel Alliance could make use of it. Piazza Hotel by Gary J. Dominic. This logic deduction game is for the Atari with at least 16K. You play as the house detective for the Piazza Hotel, and you've just been informed that someone has planted a bomb in one of 63 rooms. Your job? Find it fast. Choose a floor and a room. You're given a direction where the bomb is placed. Work fast. You have a limited amount of time. This game does not appear to exist on Atari Mania, so I'll make sure to get it delivered there via room service. Number Race by Arthur N. Schreibman. This game involves moving your joystick up or down to match a string of numbers as they zoom by. As the rounds progress, the numbers pass by faster. How high can you get your score? This game is fun for a fleeting moment, but I let this one pass you by. Hardware Corner by Edward E. Umlor. 
Last month, Edward broke down the elements of a floppy disk. I found that article to be pretty interesting, and this month's very detailed breakdown doesn't disappoint either. If you are interested in knowing what makes up a floppy drive, or just want to sound like you do, this is a good read. Well, that's about it for SoftSide this month. Hope you like the new higher-level coverage. Make sure you shoot Rob a message and tell him what you think. I welcome your adoration as well as your derision, but at least be creative about it. Thanks, Michael. And as we've noted before, Michael's going to be one of the hosts of the XCGS Cart by Cart podcast. All right, let's get into the game review of Seamus. And finally, a game with music. Yay! From here on out, we pretty much have games that have music, but prior to this, it was the rare game that had any sort of theme at all. The music doesn't play during the game itself, but you know, it has a nice little intro. Seamus is a one-player game using the joystick controller. It reminds me a lot of Berserk crossed with Robotron. You're this little guy and you walk through a bunch of single-screen mazes trying to get from one side to the other, fighting all these little baddies. The difference between this and, say, Berserk is there's a there's a whole, there's a larger maze and there's an end goal. You've got to collect these keys to get to the end so you can unlock something to get to the sort of the bad, big, big bad boss at the end of the, of the level. And then there are multiple levels you can go through. Interestingly, I'm not going to do a whole game review this time because on a just a really strange coincidence, Rob O'Hara of the Sprite Castle podcast was going to do Seamus right at the same time. So his episode is out now. It's episode 19. And so I'm really going to point you over there to all the gameplay stuff of Seamus. It's a great podcast. It's, even though it's a Commodore 64 podcast, you know, a lot of the games were ported to both platforms. But yeah, I definitely encourage you to listen to his podcast and for one thing, he's not he's not limited to covering stuff by year, so he's jumping around so you can get an idea of some stuff that later games and then earlier games and sort of the differences between late stuff and early stuff. But the gameplay, from what I can understand from his description on the C64, is almost identical. The one thing I noticed on the Atari version, rather than the C64 version, is diagonal shots on the Atari. Because this was in um, Graphics 7 Plus, essentially, well, I'll get, I'll get into that a little bit later, but it's a 7 plus mode, which is 160 across and 192 down. The pixels aren't square. And so when you're going diagonally or when you're shooting diagonally, it kind of, the, the shots don't go at a 45 degree angle. They go at one pixel over and one pixel up, say if you're shooting to the upper right. But because the pixels are twice as wide as they are tall, you don't get an exactly 45 degree diagonal shot. Whereas in, I think, the C64 version, you do. But it seems like the mazes are the same between the versions and, you know, the the bad guys, the description with the, was it the ion shivs as your little weapons? That's all the same. You know, the, the cover art and stuff is all the same between the versions. So at any rate, <laughs> to help encourage listeners to listen to fellow Throwback Network podcasts, I'm going to send you over to his, his podcast, Sprite Castle, for the game review of Seamus. And what I'm going to talk about is a little bit of the technical stuff. That is my bent, as you know by now. I do like the technical stuff. So I've got a web page up on... Uh, playermissile.com about Seamus, kind of walking through my little discoveries of some stuff that I've, I found out. The most interesting thing is this, is, in fact, is not a Graphics 7 Plus game. It's an Antic Mode 4 game, which is the, the character set equivalent of Graphics 7 Plus. So it's 40 by 24 tiles, where each tile is 4 pixels across and 8 pixels tall. So it's the same size as a Graphics Zero text screen, but it's the 4 color, actually 5 color mode. Now, interesting though, if you play the game, you'll you'll notice you've, your your little guy is a little player missile graphics is single color, so you know obviously a player missile graphics and the little your little shots are also player missile graphics. They're single color, so it's like, well, how do you how do they get the enemies in there? How do they do that? And then 
realizing that it's text mode, you're probably doubly wondering, well, how do they get those guys to move smoothly? That's why I didn't think it was text mode at first. But now knowing it's text mode, go back and play it again. I'll wait. Go back and play it again and check out the little characters as they move. Okay, you back? All right. So if you noticed, the characters either move left and right or up and down, but not both at one at any one time. And so what I discovered looking around at when I was disassembling and stuff and pausing it in the emulators, I take was taking like snapshots of the memory and would kind of look at that in a tool that I'm writing and not quite ready to publicize yet. Although if you've seen me on Twitter, you've seen some screenshots of it. So what she did when she programmed this is the characters themselves, the little enemies, are two characters wide in, in general. So the little robots, the whirling drones, the robo-droids, the snap jumpers, those little things are two characters wide in general when they're not moving. But when they move, what she did is say if, they move, if they're moving left and right, she takes those two characters and reserves a place in the character set for an additional third character and dynamically updates the character set as this, say, a whirling drone or something is moving left. So because as you as you sort of step this character over, if it's, yeah, I guess, confusing, you know, think in terms of pixels when you're in a character mode, but those little robots are eight pixels wide, which fits in two characters normally. But if you're going to move across a byte boundary, one pixel, you're going to need, the, you're gonna need three characters. First for three of the steps anyway. So what she did was she reserved three characters dynamically in the bottom of the character set. You've got 128 characters to work with in these in these tile modes. Reserve three characters, and that would place each frame would place the eight pixels wide across those three characters until it would fit in the next character cell over. So when the three when the eight pixels would then fit again in two characters, that set of movement was done. And then it can move either up or down or left or right again, but it wouldn't move both up and down and left and right at the same time. So now if you notice, if you look back again, when you play the game, you'll notice that the characters only move left until they're done with that little block of movement. Then they can move up and they move left and up and left. So there's no diagonal movement of the enemies. And what she also did somehow was coordinate all these other ones so that they don't collide with each other. So I hadn't figured that quite out, that quite out yet, but she must reserve the three characters on the screen and then just tell the other little critters not to bonk in any of those uh, those characters. But it's a really fascinating technique and not one that I hadn't really thought about, but opens up possibilities for me. You know, I'm one of my goals is to is to write a game and and kind of demonstrate some of the techniques that I've been picking up as I've examined some of these games. And so this is a technique I had hadn't even thought about to use a character mode to dynamically draw the enemies, you know, rather than using like players or missiles. So in this way you sort of get the benefit of the high resolution of the graphics seven plus mode but the smaller memory of a, a tile mode. And you get multicolors. The only limitation, of course, is the number of characters in the character set. In some of these rooms, you're attacked by probably 10 little robo-droid things at some times. So if you think of that, each one of these little robot robot things uses two entries in the character set table when it's static, when it's not moving. But if you're moving left or right, you need to reserve three. So if you have 10 enemies... Instead of having 20, 20 character cells, all of a sudden, if they're all going to move left or right at the same time, you've got 30 cells to deal with. So you've just chopped off, what, almost a quarter of your entire character set. And if you're going to move them vertically, which I haven't mentioned before, vertically, since they're two characters wide, to move them vertically, you actually need to reserve four character cells out of the character set table. So that means if they're all going to move vertically at once, of these 10 enemies, you need 40 characters. So, you know, a good third of your whole character set is now taken up. 
So if you think about doing some like tile game where you have a lot of different tiles that make up the background and you got to reserve all these characters for the movement, you're going to have some limitations to deal with. But it's a really interesting technique. And now that I'm sort of aware of it, I'm going to have to look at it in other games because this is really, you know, it's a good way of getting multicolored sort of, you know, quote unquote sprites. So kind of an abbreviated game review this time, but now if I could just convince Rob O'Hara to start covering stuff chronologically and stuff that's also been released on the Atari, then he can do the gameplay reviews and I could just do the tech reviews and that would be awesome. So I'll let you know how that goes. Now we're going to get into a special feature here. This is my first listener interview, but he's also been published in Compute Magazine. It's an interview with Michael Portuizzi, longtime listener of the podcast, which I really appreciate. Talked to him very early on about his publishing in Compute and... Finally, we were able to coordinate some time together to sit down uh, over Skype and have a little interview. So this is like a combination listener interview slash published author interview. We recorded this on September 23rd, 2015. First question I had is, is how did you get involved in Atari computers, you know, to start or, or even computers in general? I mean, and computers in general. Yeah, I think uh, so. This was like the late 70s. And I think that I was maybe like 13 years old. And I don't remember... You know, I think what it was is I was, I went to a Radio Shack and like that was when the TRS-80 Model 1 showed up and it was this like weird kind of gray slab with a gray slab keyboard and like a little black and white monitor all in that silver and black box. Yeah, I and I was just completely mesmerized by it. I think like the only thing that they had for it was like, you know, tic-tac-toe and and like the cassette recorder and I really wanted a computer super bad and, but I didn't have the money for it. And so I never bought that TRS-80. Mm -hmm. um, there was various like adults at that time who had like tinkerer types. I had a paper route. And so like various people in the paper route that I knew and, and like they knew about my interest in computers and they would give me different advice. And one of them like took me to a computer store one day and there was like really wonderful machines of the day that, because I think they actually did have like an MSI, like that they, like they had, they sold us 100 machines in mm -hmm. the store. They had an Apple II, but it was like 2,500 bucks and there was no way I was going to be able to afford an Apple II. Yeah. They had an Exidy Sorcerer, which was, those. Yeah, it's, I've recently read a thread about it on Atari Age. It was kind of an interesting machine, um, but I just didn't have any any money. And so, like, I basically saved – I was saving up money for my paper route. Long story short, when I finally made it into high school, they had a computer lab in the high school. And the computer lab had, among other things, like a PP11 mini computer. There was, like, an IBM punch card terminal. There was a TRS-80 Model 1. And there was an Atari 800 in this high school computer lab. And myself and a friend of mine, like, I was completely taken away by this machine. It was nothing like any other machine that was in the lab. It, it had color. It had these cartridges that you plugged in. Like, it had these, like, disk drives that go bleep, 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 bleep. <laughs> and um, at the same time, the TRS-80 Model 1, like, you had to load a program from cassette tape before the keyboard would stop bouncing. And... And it was just so obvious that this Atari computer was so much better than the other machines of the time. And so I, once I had enough money, I bought an Atari 800. And I think I actually had to sell my Atari 2600, and I had to sell a pair of skis that I had. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, it was like basically I cobbled all my money together and bought this Atari 800. Just, just curiously, do you remember how much you made on a paper route like every week? 
at that time? Oh, uh, I I don't remember. It might have been something like twenty bucks a week on the paper route, and I just kind of like kept putting money in a savings so account. That, that would have taken a while yeah. to save up because the eight hundreds were, gosh, what are they? It was it was like eight or nine hundred bucks. Yeah. I seem to remember paying for it, and that was like in like nineteen like eighty dollars. Yeah, yeah. I got I bought the machine. I think sometime in eighty or eighty one. Uh, with the disc drive as well, or would you just start I with did, the tape? I didn't. I did started with the tape. I had a four ten tape drive. I didn't have. I didn't have a disc drive to start off with. And then just on your TV, you know, monitor. I'm. I'm guessing yeah. there. Yeah. I, I had a little black and white TV that I had it plugged into, and then also uh, I had like a, a large console color TV from the '60s <laughs> that had like a, actually a round, <laughs> It was like a round uh, display, and like sometimes I would connect it to that, but primarily I had it connected to a black and white TV. And the little like the little dial switches on the front for the color yeah, TV. Yeah, I had the dial uh, switches for the channels. The, yeah, the VHS ch- side and the UHF side, and yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that was my monitor. And so it sounds so you had the computer lab at school. So is that where you learned to program as well? And yeah, I mean, some of it was like thinking back now to like how I learned programming. I think I yes, I actually took a course in basic programming and it was actually taught like my math teacher at the time. Our school district had like dial up computers and they had terminals that you could like dial into. And so I think as like maybe like a 10th grader in high school, I actually took a course in basic programming and it was basic programming, like an HP mainframe. And so that was like actually how I learned programming. And like the programs I would get in the class would be things like, you know, take a number, like an arbitrary precision calculator, take a number as a string and like divide that up into the digits of powers of 10, store them in an array. It was like problems like that that I was doing in basic programming in in high school. Math algorithm stuff. Math algorithms and stuff like that. Exactly. Um, But I actually got to a point where I got more proficient in it than the people who were doing the teaching. (laughs) So I think that's probably a common story of a lot of people from from the era. Yeah, especially, you know, it seems like the... You know, we as kids had a lot more time to experiment probably yes. with it than the, yeah. the teachers did. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think that was a big part of it. And it's like the, I mean, like they are, the, the teachers were well practiced and that they were smart people and that they could work through the algorithms. But the technology was new. They, yeah, they did not dive in and get immersed in it the same way, you know, a, a teenager who's discovering this for the first time would just you know, get obsessed with it. Right, yeah, just go all in and that's all you think about and you exactly. skip a meal or whatever, you know, go to bed yeah. late, all that stuff. Yeah. But... yeah, and I had another friend of mine at the time who we just basically, who was nerdier than I am and <laughs> we just got kind of, uh, like, we just dived into this together and we both, like, really were just into the Atari yeah. and, like, yeah. learning about it and how it worked. That's the best, yeah. I had a yeah. buddy of mine and, yeah, so it was just, yeah, feeding off each other and, you, you know, you create some and, and yeah. share it around and then they, he'd create something and, you know, it's just, yeah. Yeah. I think I had like another, another friend of mine that a classmate, uh, we got involved, like, you know, Conway's game of life, the cellular. Yeah. Automata. Yeah. I think he wrote a version of it for the TRS 80. And then like, I wrote a version of it for the Atari. And then we started getting into a competition of who could actually optimize it and make it faster. <laughs> like, he came up with a version of it that would, 
um, just figure out the amount of the of the of the screen of the matrix that actually needed to be computed based on the bounding and do that. And then like I resorted to writing one in six, five Oh two assembly code. And it was just kind of this arms race. <laughs> and, uh, so that was kind of a, yeah, kind of fun. Yeah. And so in, in terms of Atari specific programming, then did, did you have like, were you able to do programming on the Atari for that class or was that sort of, no, it was, was all, more, all the it was all, it was all like self-driven. Yeah. Cause that class was, so the thing was that the Atari, they just had one Atari in the school. And I don't even know why they had it in the computer lab, but the school standardized on TRS 80s. And so we had a computing lab that was filled with TRS 80s oh, at right. one point. And so after I had taken basic programming, I actually like, so I had a business teacher and so the, it was kind of like occupational training. And and so one of the classes that they had, I took a bookkeeping class, but I also took a class in COBOL programming. And so the, yeah, and so the instructor was giving us problems in, in COBOL programming. And there was actually a COBOL compiler for the TRS-80. So like most of the schoolwork stuff that I did was TRS-80. The stuff that I did in my spare time was Atari. Mm. So, yeah, and, and it was all just like whatever I wanted to do. And a lot of it was just being inspired by video games and, and sure, yeah. time, trying to, to reproduce that on the Atari. Yeah, did you get a lot of games with your Atari when you got it? Um, I got Star Raiders kind of like almost from the get-go. I remember what the other early thing that I remember about the Atari, other than that they had in the high school, was there was a shopping mall nearby and they had there was an audio video store, an AV store, and they had the Atari like sitting in front of the store, just running star Raiders all the time. <laughs> and that was, that was the other memory of the Atari that I had from the, and I knew like I had to have star Raiders like from the get go. I don't remember what other games I bought along with the machine, but I, I eventually, I got Pac-Man pretty early on. I had defender, I had centipede. Um, so I had like a, like a, a couple of different Atari games, like on cartridge, most of the time, and I had a few tape-based games, but not having a disk drive, cartridge was the way to go. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, was I? I've asked this question of all the users I've talked to. Was so was the pirating scene big where you were? It wasn't until I got to college that the pirating mm-hmm. scene had gotten big. So it's like I went off to. I was a student at Carnegie Mellon University from like eighty. Four to eighty nine. I was on the five year plan uh, uh, to get my degree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and once I got to school, like I like got connected up with the other other classmates with Atari computers, and we had a pirating ring. And oh, yeah. yeah, and and like I and also at that time I was in the Detroit area. Uh, in my later high school years, I got hooked up with people from the user groups. And so I think I got some pirate software that way, but I really remember once I got to college and just had other classmates that was like, and I did quite a lot of pirating in terms of like, I would get discs of software from my user group friends and I would take them to school and we would trade off. And I had, yeah, I think like several dozen discs all just filled with pirate software. Yeah, so it, was, I, it was all about getting like different connections. You know, take some software you get from this group that doesn't know anything yeah. about this other group and sort of we pass it around. And, that was totally, yeah, that was totally what happened. Yeah. I had, I had a couple of friends like that. It was, yeah, we had, you know, individual circles of friends would get certain games and then you just like sort of, you'd be the conduit between these other friends. And Yeah. And I think at one point, at one point I got a, a 1050 disc drive and I got the happy mm. enhancement for the 1050. And at that point, I was able to <clears throat> make pirate copies of, of discs myself. And I think the only thing that I ever cracked 
I cracked Ghostbusters. The, oh, yeah? The, yeah, because like that was just like a simple one where it would, in the boot sequence, it would go look for a bad sector on the disc. And I think I, I actually used a sector editor and I put in a couple of no-op codes like around that comparison and then after that like the that was the only piece of software that i ever like cracked the copy protection on i'm like no genius but so that was my big cracking pirating accomplishment yeah <laughs> yeah i had a couple like that too it's, it was kind of fun sort of exploring you know it was an intellectual challenge to me you know i yeah. of course i wasn't thinking about the ramifications for the software industry or the authors or whatever but no i heard the arguments at the time but i was like yeah, exactly. It didn't sink into me either. Yeah, it didn't sink into me either. It's, I just know that I did not have the money to buy all the, that software. I know, yeah, and because I have little kids and thinking about you know raising them on games and stuff, it's like I yeah. I don't really want to throw the whole universe of games at them right at the beginning because then they won't appreciate the games. Yeah. And so I think that's as a as a software pirate, I think that's the thing I ran into as well. Is I just didn't play the games long enough to really get a good feel for them. Yeah, and I agree. There's I think there's some things from that pirated era that like are still classics to me today but there are a lot of games that i just pirated and i had pirate copies of them and i never actually played them and i never appreciated them as a result seven cities of gold is one mm. um the eidolon and the coronas rift are another like just yeah. really astonishing games from the atari 8-bit heyday that like i had them and i never appreciated them in their in their proper context yeah yeah no, i'm i'm definitely the same way and yeah they were currency just to trade around and that was it yeah, it was just currency to trade around, and it was just more of a collecting exercise right. than it was like really appreciating these games. And and I'm with you. I'm kind of at a point now in my life where I like I think the the genie has left the bottle, and there's like no way that I could ever appreciate those games in their proper context again. Like despite the fact that I have the hardware, I have a I have a 130 XC. Like mm -hmm. I've I've got the hardware to still to 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 play the games, but yeah. The time has passed. Yeah, I'm kind of I'm getting into it a little bit with the Atari Age High Score Club, although it's like, mm. you know, I just don't have the time. So I'm kind of hoping as yeah. my kids get older and they sort of, may, well, who knows if they get into it or not. But if they do, then maybe I can sort of appreciate it with them. Yeah, but. yeah. I think that they would appreciate it a different way though, because um, I think they would appreciate the games for what they are, uh, because we live in a different world now where yeah. like viewed technically they're way more primitive than a modern computer system when we were experiencing them in the context of the 80s it would come out and it'd be like oh my god like because yeah. like, you would appreciate the technical achievement of like what they managed to do and now like you would look at it and it's like oh it's just another 8-bit game right yeah and, no that's and... true yeah because uh you know when we you know because both of us program and stuff and so we we yeah. sort of knew how hard some of this stuff was and just to see all these you know how did they put that many moving things on the yeah. screen at once you know stuff like that yeah and and to them what they would see is sort of this low resolution blocky <laughs> 8-bit game with bloopy sound effects yeah and they would they would appreciate the game mechanics and they would appreciate the graphics style mm -hmm. because that retro that that 8-bit graphics now is like a recognized style that people actually intentionally go for right. in, in modern game design nowadays, but they would never appreciate it in terms of when when I was there and like the next thing that would come out that would just like totally blow you away right. in terms of like seeing a new graphic effect and like, wow, how did they do that on this machine? And yeah, like you said, appreciating that, like it took them work to achieve that. Right, yeah. Yeah, and you know, now the the 
you know, they've they've seen touch screens, you know, they've seen, you know, Angry Birds or whatever and Yeah. You know, it's just the amazing graphics that are capable now on these little teeny devices and Yeah, no I yeah, so really yeah, you're right. It's it's not <laughs> it's not gonna be appreciated appreciated in the same manner as it was for us. Right. And I I had a similar experience, don't wanna go too far afield, but I was at the Amiga thirtieth uh, reunion. Oh right, yeah. Um, yeah, about two months ago in uh, at the Computer History Museum yeah, in Mountain. View. I guess you met Bill Kendrick there. He's a yeah. I met yeah. Bill Kendrick there, which was kind of fun. And he brought his I got stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and his, he brought his eight bit stuff, and I got to play his game Gem Drop mm-hmm. on his eight hundred XL, which was which is a lot of fun. And it was nice. He he brought sort of a perspective of you know here's the other things that the Amiga crew made. You know, because right. he, he brought an Atari Lynx which was made by members of the Amiga team. He brought an 800XL and like it's the same same hardware designers that did both the Amiga and the Atari 8-bits. And um, one of the things from that was there like one of the big Amiga developers of the day, um, his name is Perry Kavalowitz and he had a company called ASDG and he was sort of leading a tour through the show floor and there was a group of like you know 20 somethings who were really amiga nerds and they were at the event and and so he was leading them through and he was like oh this is the machine such and such and he would tell a story from back in the day about a software product that he was working on or about a special feature of the hardware that was in front of them and and the thing was is that the 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 these 20 somethings who were looking at they were they were really excited in terms of hearing about this technology, but the one thing that I recognized was that they had absolutely no way of, again, of being able to appreciate these machines in their context. Like mm-hmm. they could not experience the hardware the same way that I did when it came out, and 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 ex- because at the time it was like a big deal, and yeah. there. They're appreciating its significance in one way, but it's not in that way of experiencing it for the very first time, and uh, and so it was it was interesting. It was it was a fun thing to be around, like memory lane. It was a fun thing to see these uh, the these people who like you know weren't alive when the Amiga was introduced, right. appreciating it, but they were appreciating it on a completely different set of terms than I was. Yeah, yeah. So it's like. Are we, you know, is, are people growing up today like just so jaded about technology now? Just, yeah, there's exactly. so much stuff, you know, it's so powerful. It's just hard to go it's back. It's so powerful and it's something that they take for granted, yeah. I think. And so from that perspective of technology ubiquitous and it's high performing, this is from an age when technology was brand new and we were only hinting at what the possibilities were in every advance seemed like it was this amazing thing i think the only thing that i can say from modern period that felt remotely like that the period in the 80s i would actually say it would be in 2007 when the iphone came out yeah the jump to the phone probably yeah yeah because that was that was really a quantum leap forward um and it was it was a very exciting new platform and that's the only thing i can say from modern times that felt to me like this gigantic, exciting, like quantum leap of something new. Um, but it, in the, in the eighties, it happened so much more often with so many different things. And, um, the, the, the original Macintosh itself. Yeah. The Amiga, 
um, like all those, all the, the, it, it was, it was all, everything was new and everything was exciting. Well, that would have been fun to attend. I think I was, I wish I, I had an ST, which had I known more about the history, because at the time I sort of thought that, you know, the Amiga people stole away all the Atari ideas, but it really it was the Atari sort of kicked out or yes. forced everybody out with the Tremel takeover. And yes. that even before that, and um, yeah, had I known more about the history, I, I definitely would have gotten an Amiga just because of the connection. You know, J Minor, Joe DeCure, all those guys, and exactly, exactly, yeah. And Joe DeCure was there. And, oh, was he? Oh, and, really? Yeah, he was there, and he and like he did like one of the keynote talks, which was basically a walkthrough of the Amiga architecture and like the decision making and so, and so. a little bit of history and yeah and and the considerations that went into designing the chipset, and it was it was a pretty interesting discussion. Um, the a thing about the uh, w the reason why I knew about it, and you will like, I don't know if you're still covering a creative computing for the podcast. Yep. Yeah, and so uh, once you move out of David and Sandy Small, you come to John J. Anderson, who then took over the Outpost Atari column, and he was such an Atari fanboy, <laughs> and <laughs> and he was it was fun reading his column every month, and um. Sometime in 1984, he actually did he did a write up in Creative Computing about the Amiga, and oh. he, he was blown away by. I think he saw this demo at CES. This was before the machine came out. They did a technology demo, and 80, uh, yeah, 84 the yeah it was CES like CES or something. Exactly, and he did a write up of it, and he said like this is the machine that's coming from the you know these ex Atari people. And when I saw that, and when I read his description of what the machine that immediately, I was like, mm. okay, I want to know more about this. And that was how I knew. And it was like, if this is from the same people that did the Atari 8-bits, it was a machine that I was interested in. And I knew that the ST was out at that point. And I also knew that the ST was like on its own merits. The ST was a pretty darned awesome machine. And, um, but knowing about the Amiga, like I, I held out because it's like I wanted to see what the Amiga was all about, and yeah, and so I ended up getting an Amiga. Yeah, and uh, I would have had I had I known more <laughs> about it. You know, I I like the ST. I learned a lot on the ST. You know, it's really where I got my I don't know professional programming experience. You know, with C and all that stuff. That's where I learned C yeah. was on the ST. Yeah, and that was actually one cool thing about both machines, the ST and the Amiga, was that you could program them in C and you could do professional level programming mm -hmm. on them. Uh, at you know at that point, like it like I said in '84, I went off to college. I was taking college level CS classes, and I could actually do assignments on the Amiga, whereas on the Atari 8 bits, right. like you could run Basic, and and that was it. And uh, that's that's kind of an interesting thing because I had gotten my whole introduction to programming in Basic. And BASIC didn't have support for advanced data structures. It didn't right. have support for indirection with pointers. It didn't have support for all of these advanced programming concepts. And when I actually encountered them in my CS courses, in some ways, like that whole experience of cutting my teeth on BASIC actually kind of held me back in terms of there were these new ways, mm -hmm. these new thought modes of programming a computer that I was sort of unprepared to deal with. Um, but... But the thing was, is that I actually was able to do programming courses like on the Amiga. Like I took a course in computer graphics and like I was programming uh, like Bez Bresenham line drawing algorithms and fill programs. I was doing it on the Amiga, 
you know, in C because I could actually do that. Right, you know, because in, in, on the Atari, really, you really had BASIC and then 6502, and you, you had other languages like Action and stuff, but yeah, um, it really, Action. actually, like for magazine stuff, you were like, it was basic or it was assembly language. And that was, that was kind of, that was, that was really it. And, and so much of what I learned about programming came from those magazine articles. And like, I like anything, everything that I had learned about operating systems up until that point came from reading Bill Wilkinson's column mm-hmm. in compute magazine. He had his inside Atari right, column yeah. and, and he would be like, okay, we're going to talk about how IOCBs work in this column. And we're going to like, yeah, we're going to implement Atari's XIO command in Assembler. It's done. And, and uh, yeah, what what magazines did you start reading now? Did you get subscriptions to anything, or did you buy them at the newsstands like I did? Or I had subscriptions to Compute and to Creative Computing, and that was most of what I had read. And I might. That's the weird thing is like I didn't actually have subscriptions to Analog or Antic, which were the two mm-hmm. big. Atari magazines, and I didn't really read a whole lot of them. I I played some of the games. Like I remember playing some of like Analog had these really awesome type in games, and I remember playing some of them. But I got those like on disc from someone else. Oh yeah, yeah. So like I I would type in all the things from like Compute and Creative Computing, um, but those are the two magazines that I I did most of my learning from. And, um, but yeah, I, I, a lot of what I learned about computing before I actually got, I mean, I got like the basic programming from my high school class, but there was gap and that gap was like filled by just reading these magazines and just picking up all these programming techniques and looking back on it, it was really valuable, but it also held me back in terms of like, in terms of when I actually got a classical CS, uh, education it it just went beyond what was in those magazines and it was it was a stretch for me so yeah yeah those languages are certainly different than you know the unstructured basic and assembly languages that at that machine level it just takes so long to do things there's yeah so many instructions to do this and 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 most of what i did was in basic i did very little Mm -hmm. assembly language programming um, I think because at the time I was like, I was afraid to do it and I don't know why now, but like, <laughs> like the machine would crash and I would lose all my work. Know, right? yeah. so you just hit reset. And, uh, <laughs> but most of what I did was in basic and yes, and it was unstructured and it lacked the most sophisticated data structure in basic was an array, mm-hmm. an array of integers. If you're talking about Atari basic. And so not having that experience with more advanced data structures was yeah, it was it was definitely an adjustment for me. At the same time, it was also the thing that like got me started on a professional career because I don't think like today, you know, 25 years later, um, I'm a technical lead. I supervise a team of developers. Like I've done professional development for 25 years. I don't think I would have gotten that start if I hadn't had that Atari to begin with, and and actually just learned basic programming. So, yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat too. I'm. I do software now. I've, um, you know, I got an engineering degree at, at in college, thinking that I would do some sort of, you know, actual engineering work. But I just kept liking the the computer stuff, the aspect, yeah. you know, all the all the stuff you had to do, the simulations and whatever. And I just liked that better. And so I, even though I got an engineering degree, I just did the programming, and that's what I've done since. And I, I, I credit the hacking on the Atari for my career as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, I think that the the people who created those machines, they should really be proud of the fact that not only did they create a computing platform, but they created a whole generation of 
of computer engineers. Yeah. And it's because like we were people that like we got into it because of them, because they gave us an accessible tool that would let us, you know, get get going. Yeah, right. And you know, because we had the we had the ability to like know as much of the hardware as you wanted to. You know, you can delve down as far as you want. You could learn it all, yeah. and you know, you, you pick up a machine now. It's just so many subsystems, and yeah, you know. I don't even know how you would go about learning programming now. Like from, it's like I almost want to say like give them an Apple II or a Commodore yeah. sixty four, an Atari, and like have them learn the same way. That's not a practical answer for nowadays, and I'm not even sure if if the hardware were readily accessible that it would make sense to learn things the same way. But at the same time, what, what they do is they create nowadays you create these sandbox environments like scratch or something like that. But it's almost like programming with Legos in terms of like, you're, you're like, I'm, I'm going to create this Sprite and I'm going to dress this Sprite and then I'm going to put the Sprite on the stage. And it's almost like everything is so high level that you're not, you're still not actually learning how anything works. You're learning how to like push things around on a stage. Mm. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's too much to expect for someone just getting into computing, but it just it feels to me like it's superficial in a way compared to the way that we learned programming where it's like, oh, if you set this memory location in this register, the computer is going to do this. And and just like having to put together everything from first principles. Yeah. Uh, and there's yeah nobody really bootstraps themselves up anymore like that and it's yeah exactly yeah we had to bootstrap ourselves up i mean like if you were lucky you were on a machine like the commodore 64 or the atari 8 bits that would do sprites like you could actually pro like they would be able to do animation and and stuff for you um but even then you still had to like okay you have to put together a bitmap you have to put that bitmap in memory you have to point the hardware at it then you have to like tell the hardware to like okay move it here yeah. and it, it's still just very low level and it's still bootstrapping it's different today that's for sure yeah <laughs> how are these kids today you know yeah exactly get off it, my lawn <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well so talking about magazines so yeah. what one of the things that um, i always wanted to do was to was to you know write a program and get it published and you did that i did that yeah so how did you decide that you wanted to try to get something published that's kind of funny because it's like i it's hard for me to remember that part of the story now but i had gotten a book you know i'd gotten like compute second book of atari and they had a simple program in it that was like you would plot points with it and like it would make data statements or something for use in the program and i was like i looked at that and i was like oh like i could do a better version of this and i don't know where the inspiration came from to actually say i'm going to send this i know i like compute magazine ran essentially a call for authors and they ran their author guidelines in the magazine and i think that i thought well if they publish this other article and I'm making a better version of it, maybe they would publish this too. And so, and like I was making, I was writing the program in basic with my Atari 410 cassette recorder. Cause I didn't have a disc drive at the oh. time. The, the royalties from the article was what enabled me to buy a 1050 disc drive. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. So that was kind of neat. And I don't remember, I I just remember at some point that like I could write this up as an as as an article and what I did 
So I didn't have any peripherals for my Atari. So I did all of the of the authoring of the article in my high school computer lab on a TRS-80 Model 3. The Model 3s had really awesome keyboards. Hmm. Uh, they, were, they were the all-in-one. Oh, the, but they're TR- still the big block ones? I don't The don't big like, blocky, yeah, but it was like... very well. Yeah, the TRS, the Model 3 had the CPU, the display, and the keyboard all integrated into one boxy unit. Oh, and the floppy drives. Oh, right, yeah. yeah, so it was like really like a console computer. Um, but they had SuperScriptSit, which was a pretty darn good word processor. Hmm. And like the, the TRS-80s were good machines to like, they were good practical tank-like machines to get work done. And, I, <laughs> and so I wrote the article on that. And I remember going through several rounds of revising that article to meet the author guidelines. I mean, like, was I, that a like, back and forth with the computer itself, or is this just like you editing yourself? Uh... I think it was me editing myself. And I don't remember so many rounds of going back and forth with compute. It was more like I like I followed. I made a floppy disk with the program. I made a printout of the article i packaged that up with a cover letter and i sent it off to compute magazine and like a couple weeks later i'm pretty sure i got something from them that said like you know we're interested in you know publishing the article and they sent me you know essentially a contract to sign that more or less not only did i gave give them like rights to publish it but i also gave gave them like first refusal you know, if I was going to publish it in any other like forum. So I think technically, like I put the source code for the app up on GitHub now. Mm-hmm. I think technically, like whoever owns Compute Publications still owns the first right of refusal for me. I just put it up on GitHub. <laughs> <laughs> I made it public domain now. But uh, but I don't think yeah, so it's coming after you personally. But no, no. And then, but the thing was that I sent that back to them and it was actually several months later, like, actually I didn't know what happened to it. I, I thought that they were going to publish it in the magazine mm-hmm. and I, I would get the magazine every month. And I'd be like, where is it? Like they, they gave me no, oh, no hints at all about when it was going to be published. A, no, no hints at all about when it was going to be published or, or, and so eventually I got another letter from them that was basically like, we've selected your article to appear in Compute's Atari Collection Volume 2. And then, like, a couple months after that, they actually sent me a copy of the book. Uh-huh. And I still, I, still have a cop- I still have a copy of the book that has the article in it. And uh, what they did, and it was something that they didn't tell me either, is they, they edited the article. And the article was formatted. It, the first thing was, like, basically how to use the program. Use the joystick, hit the select and start buttons, and da-da-da-da. And then the second half of the article was that customary walkthrough lines 210 through 240 do this and set up this yeah. and in line 400 you know we call a routine that sets up the graphics this way. and that whole portion of the article that explained how it worked they just whacked it off and <laughs> and and then they took they also had taken what i looking at it now looking at my original manuscript versus what they printed they very much streamlined the text that i wrote oh so they did some editing over there they did some editing uh and the vast majority of it was for the better um i think one thing that they did was i think they got the printout incorrect because i typed in my program from the printout that appeared in the book 
and they left off i think the like the final line of the code or something oh, really? like that. yeah i actually when i typed it back into my 130xe i was like this is not working properly i had to debug it and fix oh. it <laughs> <laughs> so that it would actually work again but yeah i think if you actually typed in the program as printed in the book it would not work huh interesting i wonder if they yeah that must be a complicated process to you know typeset a book or you know a, a magazine yeah. or whatever and not get problems somehow yeah and i think at the time they were probably manually doing paste ups mm. Uh, so it's like where you actually go, like print out the typeset copy on a photocopying machine and then you coat it with wax. You go over to a board, which is your page layout, and then you get like a squeegee roller and you roll that. And I think that they still they had not made that uh, transition to digital layout. And so it right, would have yeah. been very easy for something to get left on the cutting room floor. And I think that's probably what happened since it was the final line of the program that got oh, lost. Oh, yeah, just got trimmed accidentally or whatever, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that whole story was – it was it was an interesting thing because, uh, like, I paid, got paid $350 for the article, um, which was awesome. Like I said, that paid – that like, pretty much that was the cost of a 1050 disk drive back then. So I got a disk drive for my computer uh, – but it was sort of a not a lot of back and forth happened between myself and the magazine. It was just like I sent it off to them and they kind of accepted it and they they edited it. I don't I don't think I had a back and forth with them hmm. on on how to edit. They just basically took it and they did it. <laughs> they did it the, the way that they saw fit. Um, so and, and I'm fine with that. I was actually looking at the original manuscript now because I, I OCR'd the manuscript and to put it up on GitHub and looking through it now, I would be like, yeah, like there's whole portions of it. Like I editing the stuff that I wrote as like a 16 or 17 year old. Like, <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I totally would have edited what I wrote. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. I, I look at, I found some of my old floppies and have some of my old like papers and stuff from high school. And I'm like, wow, I really wrote this. Yikes. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's funny now just to look at with adult eyes and stuff you wrote back then. So I understand what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And I have the same way about looking at the code that I wrote <laughs> because I did actually read articles about, and this probably came from creative computing where I read these articles about structured programming and the importance of structured code. Mm -hmm. And like, and, and so it's like, I tried doing that sort of thing in the context of Atari basic. Yeah, uh, so hard. So I did things like, for instance, in Atari basic, unlike the Microsoft basics, you can use an expression for your go to or go sub. Mm -hmm. So instead of having to say go sub align number, you could say go sub and you could give it a variable. And if that variable was set to 5,400, it would go sub 5,400. So I would create these variables with descriptive names of the various routines in the program. Mm. And then so it would be like go sub save line or, you know, go sub like, and so like, it, it, I, so I tried to make these things descriptive and I put these like little remarks in the program and it was like obvious that like I was trying to write structured programming <laughs> and I'm looking at it now and it's like, it's still all crap, but, <laughs> but well, that's what I you could do. I mean, that was the sort yeah. of limits of structured ability in basic. Exactly. You know? Yeah. But I also take solace in the fact that like any piece of code that I look at from that period was all like messy stuff <laughs> yeah so i don't think anyone wrote 
like nice clean structured code on you know in basic on those machines no no i think you're right it's it's very very difficult to do and and just you know not only do you have the language limitations but you have memory limitations and you know there's Mm -hmm. all sorts of sort of optimization things you've got to do really early on that you don't have to do now yeah absolutely and the other thing about the program was it was also a tour de force of all of the programming tricks that i learned while reading these magazines right because it had some self-modifying code in there right it had some self-modifying code in it. Yeah. It's, it's like, so what you would do is you would draw lines on the screen with the joystick. So you like, there was a, uh, a cursor, which was a player, player missile graphics, and you would like hit the button and move around and, and draw these lines and stuff on the screen. And what it was doing is it was just storing them in an array. And then like when you hit, I think like the start button, what it would do is it took advantage of this crazy mode of the Atari screen editor. It would switch over to graphic zero. It would print out a bunch of lines of basic code on the screen. It would position the cursor at the top of the screen. It would do a poke to the OS that turned the screen editor into a forced line input mode. And then it would terminate the program. And (laughs) And then what would happen is that the OS would mechanically like read every line off the screen as if it had been typed in at the keyboard. Enter, 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 enter. enter, Exactly. (laughs) And then the final line on the screen would be continue. (laughs) (laughs) And so what would happen is that Atari Basic would, as far as Atari Basic was concerned, someone typed in a bunch of lines of program of code and then restarted the program. (laughs) <laughs> and so it was it was self-modifying code and it was also metaprogramming yeah. in 1982 yeah. and i had no idea at the time but it was but it was like using every trick that I, and i read and i knew about this like forced programming mode by i think it might have been like a bill wilkinson column that explained how this worked and like how can you write a program that's using all these crazy tricks and also be like well-structured modular clean code you just don't (laughs) like i yeah i was busy like oh it's like oh look if you play with atari basic string table you can actually locate a 2048 byte character string right on a page boundary or like on a 1k boundary and then you can point the player missile hardware at it and then like and then by doing eight dollar sign equals blah 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 what you're actually doing is moving sprite data around (laughs) And you don't have to write any assembly to do it. And this is like, wow, cool. Yeah. <laughs> All these tricks. That's funny. All these tricks. Yeah. And if you look at it now, it just looks like this crazy. <laughs> it's like, what were they thinking? But yeah. What were they thinking? Like, what was I thinking? Um, but, but that's what you but had to that, do. But that's what you had to do. Exactly. Because otherwise, what there was no other way to do it. Other than. The other way to do it would be to like sit down and like write a piece of assembler code mm-hmm. and then find a way to embed it in your program and and yeah. So yes, and so it was like taking advantage of those tricks because that was the only way you could make things happen, and that was just completely at odds with writing well-engineered software. Yeah, but you know that's that's what the magazines would do, and so that's what we'd learn from the, reading the magazines. Exactly. And... It's totally what we would learn from the magazines because they the magazines were teaching us. Yeah. And so the magazines wanted these tips and techniques because that's what the readers wanted. They, they were just giving people what they wanted. And even though the, the, I think the technical 
acumen of the editors in at these magazines was actually very high. And I think especially for a compute magazine. Um, but even so, uh, what they were doing is they were educating a mass audience in like how to program these machines and, uh, and basically anything was fair game for them. Yeah. Yeah. And the community was spread out. Like you had a couple of friends, I had a couple of friends, you know, we couldn't learn all this stuff by ourselves and there wasn't enough reference. So we had to sort of go to the magazines and, and they were, the magazines themselves were getting feedback from all these other places and yeah the internet of the day was monthly magazines <laughs> it, it it totally was it totally was monthly magazines and uh so they had a lot of roles to fill uh you know not just in terms of like new products but they you know they provided a lot of documentation like the your in bite magazine you're covering in player missile the the whole serialized thing from chris day ray atari was serialized in bite magazine because like they were basically yeah. teaching people how to how to use this machine. I I learned about display list interrupts and player missile graphics from reading David and Sandy Small in Creative Computing. That was that was how you learned. Yeah, yeah. So you wrote Superplot in the what eighty two eighty three time frame. Yeah. I don't think what books were out then. I it, it's hard for me to. I know that Compute's second book of Atari was out because that was the inspiration for. Mm. But I'm trying to remember what books were out think, about program mapping the Atari. I think was certainly I think it was around at the time. I had that one, and then I and there was like books about Atari Basic, but the books about Atari Basic really only covered the commands that Basic had. So it's like beyond plot and draw to and beyond sound. Yeah, it certainly wasn't any of that the you know aligning strings on page boundary kind of tricks. You know, none of that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It wasn't that kind of stuff at all. It was more about like just getting like simple graphics to work with the stuff that like Atari Basics supported out of the box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like there was not a tutorial on how to redefine the character set or like how to write a display list interrupt. That that stuff just wasn't there. Or manipulating the fine scroll registers or yeah. uh, that that stuff. Like yeah, you had to go to the magazines to learn that. I think. I do remember at some point I did buy Day Ray Atari, uh, oh, yeah. and I ordered it from the Atari program A- APX. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember when that happened, but I do remember being very much influenced by it. And like Chris Crawford is another person that I think that I probably owe a tip of thanks for my career because he had he wrote an appendix in Day Ray Atari, and it was called Human Engineering. Mm-hmm. And that was my first introduction to user interface development, which we now call UX, mm. yeah, user experience. But that was something that captivated me. And I knew that like, what I wanted to do was to make computers, make technology more accessible to everyday people. And what he had written in that appendix was basically the basic principles of user interface design, about feedback, about uh, making interfaces articulate, like it's really an amazing appendix huh. that you, you should read, and it yeah, has it, it, and it really has nothing at all to do with Atari programming per se, except for the fact that because the Atari had this really awesome graphics and sound hardware, that like it actually gave you a lot of affordances in terms of being able to put together a rich interface. Yeah. Uh, but it was very influential, and that was one of the things that uh, that like 
steered me into taking courses like computer graphics and I took a course in like human interface design as in my in my schoolwork and it was so some of the influence came from Chris Crawford for that. Wow, yeah, that's great. Yeah, I've I've actually not I don't have a copy of Dare Atari. I've got a a growing collection of books, but not that. And uh, yeah. I've, I've peeked in, you know, Internet Archives copy, but I'll have to read that appendix. That's great. Yeah, it's not a super big appendix. It's 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 very interesting to read. It's interesting to read, like putting yourself in the historical context of when it was written. But I think it actually, even now today, like it still has something useful to say in terms of, you know, good UX design principles. Oh, that's that's cool. I'll have to read that. Yeah, but I think like in terms of books, I didn't really have that many during uh, during the time that I wrote. It was all primary that I wrote this out. It was all magazines. And then, did you keep up with the magazines for the as long as you had the eight bits? And yeah, I did. And I I I remember I wrote more articles for compute like since they published the first one. Uh, I think that was the only one that the magazine actually printed. I did another one, which was a character set editor. Like you could actually, if Graphic Zero, if you flip the right bit for GTIA, you can get like the 16 color graphics modes out of GTIA. And I was like, oh, well, I'm going to put together an editor that lets you edit character sets just for this mode. And I sent it to them, and they held they held on to that article for a good year and a half before they finally wrote back to me. And I was, I was like well into my studies at college at the time. And they like basically apologized to me for not getting back to me sooner. And they were like, but like we have no interest in this article. And I don't know if it was because like they really didn't see the merit in the article, which I thought was stronger than my first, mm-hmm. or if it was by that point, the eight bit computers were just like they they weren't becoming commercially viable anymore, and I think maybe the focus of compute probably was at that point like on the ST, mm-hmm. the Amiga, the Macintosh, like all the 16-bit machines, and they just weren't that interested in publishing 8-bit software anymore. Yeah, I'm going to be interested as this podcast goes along as to you know so when when the sort of the magazine coverage yeah. wanes and yeah, and it all peters out. Yeah. yeah, I remember I sold off my Atari 800, and I think it would have been. The end of '84, beginning of '85, I think that's about the the time for the Amiga. For the Amiga, yeah. And the only way that I could afford to buy the Amiga 1000 was to sell off. By that point, I had gotten an Epson printer. I had my disk drive. I had the disk drive upgraded. I had a boatload of software. I had one of the modems that plugs into the joystick ports. One, oh. the, there's a microbits modem, mm-hmm. and I sold the whole kit and caboodle. And then, like, took together whatever money I had, and I bought an Amiga 1000 out of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, although I loved the Amiga, um, I wish that there was a way I could have kept the Atari. But hey, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's funny. I I think about that. Yeah, I I ended up I did end up keeping my 8-bit stuff, but it was more just out of I don't know happenstance than anything. And yeah, then, yeah. You, it wasn't like you had a carefully calculated like I love this stuff and I can't let it go. It was it was more of like you put it in the closet and stopped thinking about it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah. so now I'm I'm grateful I still have it. Although I I haven't yeah. hooked up my hardware in a while. And um, the thing I'm really kicking myself about is I don't know what happened to my magazines. I had a pretty good collection of analogs, yeah. and I don't remember what I did with my magazines because I I had all those magazines and I I remember having the whole collection of the creative computings and the computes and I. I don't remember what happened to them. I, they must have been tossed out at yeah. some point. And, and that, I, I 
that that's another missed opportunity to to have held on to those. Yeah, but I don't know. Nostalgia is a pow- powerful thing, as we know. Yeah, and... but I do know that like once I had sold the Atari, like at that point, like I basically stopped, you know, thinking about Atari eight bits, and like all of my attention was on the new new thing. Mm-hmm. And, and when did uh, you kind of get back into the eight bits? <sighs> that would have been probably sometime in the mid nineties and or early to mid nineties. And what happened then was I actually, so I started with an Atari 2600. I sold the 2600 by the 800. I sold the 800 to buy the Amiga. And at some point, um, you know, my nephew, uh, had an Atari 2600 and it was like, it was another one of these things where it had been lying around. I took possession of it and I actually got into retro gaming and I started collecting like I got an Intellivision and a ColecoVision and oh, wow. 8-bit NES. A super, well, I had a Super NES that I bought originally, but I built up this collection of classic hardware. And then along with that, um, I found an Atari 400 at a garage sale. I bought an Atari. Where did I get the Atari 800 from? I think I bought the Atari 800, I think, like off of a classified ad from someone in the Bay Area. I found like like people from Silicon Valley that like I bought software collections from. I got another copy of Day Ray Atari. I got the OS printouts. And I and I had this pretty sizable collection of Atari hardware. I had an Indus disk drive. Uh, I had at least one other disk drive. I, I think I had like a 1050 and an Indus. I I, I I amassed this collection of Atari hardware. And then what happened was, is like somewhere around the year 2000, 2001, um, all this stuff like basically went into storage in the basement, like all of the classic hardware, all of my Atari stuff. And it wasn't long after that that I realized that this stuff was not doing me any good sitting in storage. And in fact, there was a cost associated in terms of it was just sitting down there, contacts were oxidizing. And the hardware was kind of like I would like get out the ColecoVision and plug it in, and it wouldn't work because mm. contacts needed cleaning and restoring, and and it was the stuff was just going bad sitting there, and I sold everything off on eBay, and including that Atari collection that I had put together with all of this software and 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 stuff, and then about a year and a half ago, I was overcome by nostalgia. I think it was when the Antic Podcast came out and I discovered the Antic podcast and I listened to the first couple of episodes of Antic and I was like, Oh, I have to have (laughs) an Atari 8-bit. And I found someone selling me a 130XE on eBay and it was like, they had gotten it as a college gift, never used it. It sat in a box. Oh, really? Wow. Pristine. Yeah. yeah. It's an almost pristine 130XE that wound up in, in, and I, at that point I made a promise to myself that I was not going to build up a huge retro collection that like this would be the one thing that I from the past that I would have. This was my this was the machine that I had cut my teeth with computing on. Like it has the sentimental attachment more so than the Amiga. And like this was and I wasn't going to build up this big collection of stuff because I live in kind of a small house in San Francisco. I just don't have the space to set up and use all this stuff and I'm not gonna let it just sit and waste away in storage. So that was the deal that I made. Was I got that one machine, <laughs> and again this year I went to the the Amiga um, 30th reunion. 
there was a vendor there selling Amiga 500s, Amiga 1000s, Amiga 2000s. Like they, they just had stacks of these machines. Did you restrain I yourself? Was, <laughs> I restrained myself. Yeah, I did not come home with an Amiga <laughs> from the event, um, even though I really wanted one. Yeah. Um, so I, I have, I have made my packed with myself i'm sticking with it but yeah there's something about the first machine you know I... yeah it, it's very special and even though i had an atari 2600 first the 2600 was not a computer it was you know yeah it was a fun you know it was a yeah. consumption device rather than something that you can sort of create on exactly yeah you couldn't really create on it so the the atari was my first computer and there is something special about that i don't I don't again. I don't know if that's special now for people nowadays. <laughs> like my very first Macintosh, yeah. or you know, my very first like iPad. I, like I don't know if people would have that same kind of special attachment to their first computing device the way that I did with my Atari. Right. Yeah. I don't know either, but I I certainly have that that attachment as well, and that's that's why yeah. I'm doing this podcast. It's just a and that's why I'm listening to your podcast. Yeah. That's why. Follow your podcast. Well, thanks. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's fun to do, and it's like you know, it really it it does remind me of of some of the just great times that I had programming and playing games and the you know reading the magazines. Just it's it's hard to describe to people now with the internet and stuff, but it was just this was you know a, a great thing that we had. And uh, I try to describe it now. You know, the I work with software developers that are in their twenties and thirties, and I try to explain explain to them what it was like for me and it's like it's like they they can't comprehend it they they can't i mean like of course they can comprehend how one of these machines but they they just like they just don't have a frame for appreciating what it was like and, and what it meant and it's almost like i feel like um it's not like i'm telling my story to an unappreciative office audience it's it's more like i'm uh, telling my story to an audience who just can't appreciate it the the same way that yeah, I do. Yeah, just doesn't doesn't quite get it. Uh, doesn't quite get level. it. I, yeah. yeah, they to them computing means a completely different thing that they came up in an era of like modern machines mm -hmm. that yeah, that do things that they take for granted that to to my 16-year-old self would be science fiction. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and it's like Case in point, I have a 130XC. I bought the SIO to SD device because I didn't I didn't want to buy a 1050. I don't want to maintain a mechanical mechanism. I don't want to deal with disks that are going to go bad. Right. So I got an SIO to SD and I put AT, ATR images on it. And I load, like, that's the primary storage device for this Atari. From the point of view of the Atari, that SIO to SD is alien technology. <laughs> It is. It's it's alien technology. Like it is capable of holding yeah. more content than the entire body of software ever written for the machine mm -hmm. on one SD card. And it, <laughs> yeah, it's the the merging of two generations of stuff. You know? Exactly. And like from the point of view of that 1980s hardware, there's a piece of science fiction sitting <laughs> on the other end of the SIO bus. Uh, so <laughs> it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's the same sort of thing with the people that I talk to. It's like they just they don't they can't even comprehend, you know, what it was like. Yeah. And what I would have found exciting. Yeah. <laughs> great talking with you and uh, Thank you for inviting me to be a guest on your show. Oh, this is great. Yeah. I, I appreciate taking the time to share your memories and uh I'll I'll, I'll definitely put a link in the show notes to the stuff, you know, you sent me your super plot 
article yeah. on GitHub. So I'll put that up there. And uh, yeah, and maybe a link to the uh, Day Atari chapter on human engineering. Oh, that, yeah, in, 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 yeah. The Internet Archive, which would be kind of a fun thing to link to as well. As well, yeah. Well, so thanks again. It's been great. Thank you. With you. So thanks again to Michael for taking the time out to talk with me. It was fun talking to him about the magazine. You know, I, I definitely did want to get something published in a magazine, and I was kind of writing those little games in an attempt to do that, but I never really succeeded, never finished one. It was cool to hear that his getting published was uh, the key to him getting more Atari hardware. And I guess, you know, as we discussed, it's like, as much as I'm trying to get maybe my kids into the retro games, you know, they, they definitely won't have the same appreciation just because there's so much more technology available now. That as, as great as these games are and the gameplay was the focus, you know, just not having that same sort of feeling as one of these new games came out, that, of course, by today's terms is as in you know, nothing for graphics. But just the next little iteration of stuff was just so impressive. And now having the whole universe of games available at any time from back then is, yeah, it's not going to be the same. And I guess before talking to Michael, I kind of thought I might be able to sort of have my kids appreciate it in the same way, but, you know, clearly they won't. And uh, while I still hope they'll find stuff fun, you know, I've got Pac-Man in the arcade cabinet now, and they, they do seem to enjoy that, but they're not, like, glued to it like I would have been at the time. So, yeah, I guess this horse is way out of the barn by this point. But I don't mean to end on a depressing note. <laughs> so, we'll think happy thoughts. Looks like I'm not going to be able to make the Portland Retrogramming Expo this year, so I hope all those folks that do make it do have a great time. Play some Major Havoc for me. That was a game I played for the very first time at last year's Portland Retrogaming Expo. Great game. Maybe somebody do a walkthrough of the arcade stuff and, you know, let me see all the games that were there. Maybe we'll have some write-ups and stuff about, you know, the games, the many Atari pickups you might have had. So I will try to get it back on the schedule for next year. But for now, I'll just be thinking about the next episode. So I will see you for February 1982. And in it, we'll wrap up the second half of part two of the flight simulators, the military flight simulators with Chris Olson. So I will see you next episode. Thank you.